In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Angelo DeLulo, anesthesiologist, spiritual teacher, and author of Awake, It's Your Turn. We learn how a profound existential angst in childhood and adolescence propelled Angelo into spiritual practice and, by the age of 24, precipitated a radical spiritual awakening. Angelo details the practices, shifts, and consequences of his awakening and shares the process of coming face-to-face with deeply held conditioning. Angelo also discusses certainty and religious experience and reveals why he is absolutely certain that not only can anyone wake up, but that anyone who wants to will. So without further ado, Dr. Angelo DeLulo. Dr. Angelo DeLulo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first of all, Angelo, congratulations on the recent publication of your new book, Awake, It's Your Turn. Thank you. That was published uh, earlier this year in 2021, I believe. It was in May. Mm -hmm. But you've been teaching and uh, working in this uh, field for quite, quite some longer than that. And in fact, your first significant experiences um, were really rather early in your life. Uh, yeah. But I'd like to go back even further than that. Can you tell us something a little bit about your upbringing? Um, sure. Talk a little bit about your, your childhood and your family and what led you to eventually begin meditation practice at the age of 19? Um, so I, to summarize it in a word, suffering. Not that my upbringing was terrible, not that, um, that I was in constant suffering, but my early childhood, from what I remember, uh, there was a lot of presence but I, I could feel a lot of emotion around me. I could feel the emotions of others. I took, I took emotion on very, very easily as all children do, but maybe for me, even a, a bit more. But um, I remember just, it seemed like I was processing a lot of emotion, a lot of um, feeling, um, perhaps repression. And, but there was so much presence still as young children um, are, they're taught, they're typically in a lot of presence. Um, it was, uh, I, I guess I wouldn't say I perceived any problem or anything like that. But even in older childhood, I started to feel that that um, uh, entrapment of thought, and I was very aware of it. I could see the thoughts starting to form. Um, I could even see how I could use thoughts uh, as a sort of escape mechanism and you know, kind of go into imagination a little bit. Um, but ultimately, they started feeling very uncomfortable by the time I was, you know, probably less than ten years old. I was pretty aware of thoughts, how frequently they came, and how uncomfortable they became. Um, even that I wouldn't call the sort of apex of suffering. Uh, it was more probably when I became socially aware and that just added a whole other layer of, of suffering onto the, onto the deal. Um, somewhere around pre-teen, 12, 13, 14, I remember just feeling like completely out of sorts. Um, something's definitely wrong here. And I knew it was somewhere up here, something about thought. But, but by that point, identity had really wound itself around thought, which felt extremely uncomfortable to me, but I couldn't have articulated it that way. And the worst part was I felt like I had to solve it through thinking, through concept, through figuring something out. And that just tightened the noose. It was like every direction I moved, the noose tightened. So by the time I was mid-teens, like I was miserable moment to moment. And um, people who knew me probably wouldn't have known that. I didn't really articulate it. I, did, I don't know if it was a culture or my family or what it was, but I wouldn't have thought of therapy. Um, I just wouldn't have thought of asking anyone about this. Uh, and interestingly, and looking back, I can see there was definitely some wisdom there that I could also tell that what I was coming up against, what was my, my real concern, the real trigger point for me um, was something people weren't actually comfortable talking about. 
and still aren't actually, interestingly. I mean, more and more people are, which is great. But um, but yeah, so I, I just intuited that the the problem that was causing me so much suffering was actually where a lot of people find comfort in thoughts and and that sort of thing. And so yeah, I felt very alone, very like I have to sort this out. I have no idea how, uh, but it just energetically felt like contraction, 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 smaller and smaller space of living in my head, didn't know how to solve it. The thought was almost constant. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Um, so that was, that was mid to late teens, um, tried like some substances, drugs, these things, and didn't really work. I mean, it didn't, didn't really help. I could tell that wasn't the answer. Um, even to the point of like, I was like, should I just kill myself? Maybe because that, you know, that'll end the suffering. But interestingly, something in me knew that wouldn't. I knew that I would end up facing this again. I just knew, I knew it very clearly, actually. I didn't know why I knew it. I didn't have overt beliefs about past lives and future lives and, and reincarnation, but something in me just knew, no, that's definitely not the answer. Uh, as much of a relief it would be, it's, it's, it's almost like a short-term uh, deal and I'm gonna face this later somehow. And I knew it. Um, so it was like, that's, that's not the answer, which kind of made it worse because it's like, now I have to figure out some other answer that I have no context for in this world, right? Um, so, so yeah, just, just intense suffering, intense, um, mind identification. Uh, as I've said in other interviews, I've come to learn that for a lot of people, thoughts can actually be comforting and, and being in that world of mind identification and a little numb, a little distance from life can be a sort of stability for me. It wasn't for me, it was torture, like really bad, <laughs> not comfortable. So, um, the first contact I had with spirituality to give it a, a word um was probably i was in a, a martial arts class and i met this old hippie who had learned transcendental meditation but he learned it from maharishi in india in the 60s and he hung out with all those guys he knew them all and uh I, i'm not sure if he was there when the beatles were there but he 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 was there a lot and he learned it directly from him so he taught me mantra meditation um which was the first sort of meditation i learned and uh i took to it like a fish takes to water i just loved it um, it was so relaxing, so peaceful. Um, I think probably within a year of starting meditation, I definitely had my first uh, taste of awakening. I, a taste of, I shouldn't say awakening. I, um, I, I'm pretty careful about how I use that word, but uh, I got my first taste of something definitely beyond, beyond the normal constructs of what it feels like to be a human, the human situation, the, the normal human problems, contexts that are safe to solve those problems and solutions that are, you know, acceptable, all of that, somehow this was like a hole in the side of that thing. It was something completely different and beyond. Um, and, and that, that's kind of like a pre-taste of awakening that, that a lot of people have. And I would say I had that somewhere within the first year of learning to meditate. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I have some allergy stuff going on. Um, so yeah, so that, that taste was, you know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's so wonderful. Um, and you feel like, wow, I just touched into something very, very real. This is it, you know, and it's just gone, like within a day or two, just gone. And you feel like worse, right? Because now you know there's something possible and you have no freaking clue where it came from, how to get it back, you know, the typical story around these pre-awakening experiences. Um, and so all I knew what to do was just to keep meditating. I sort of equated meditation with, progressing down this path somehow. Uh, I really didn't know where, what, I didn't have anything else to go on. You know, I didn't have the internet. I didn't have non-duality. Um, I had gone to bookstores and looked through the spiritual book section, but it was back then, at least it was such a mishmash of things. There's like, you know, 
sort of spirit, pseudo spirituality or maybe some like new age stuff mixed with this and that. I, I couldn't sort it. I couldn't understand. I didn't pick anything up that really just, you know, resonated. So that just didn't seem to work for me. So I just meditated. Um, and probably three or four years after that, there was the experience I wrote about in the book when I was in a, I think it was an Eastern religion or Japanese culture class or something like that. And one day our professor was sick and we had a um, Buddhist, I'm not sure if he was a monk or a lay person, but he was, he was a Buddha, practicing Buddhist. And he was giving this talk on, you know, Buddhism and talking about the causality and chain of, uh, chain of causality suffering, you know, and it was interesting. It was definitely interesting. I was like, oh yeah, I can see how that works in the mind. You know, you, you think about this and you hold on to that. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what he said. I can't, I can't remember what he said actually, but he, he suggested there's this possibility of like completely coming out of that to free yourself from that whole thing. And I felt it in that moment. I was like, oh, and I was like, you know, my hand shot up and I said, is that, is that real? The thing you're talking about? I said it just like that. And he, he stopped and he like took a couple steps forward. He looked right at me to make sure I recognized what he was saying. And he said, there is no doubt. He looked at me and then he kept lecturing. And I was like, whoa, that is what I'm interested in, whatever the hell that is. And I still, I don't know if I equated it to enlightenment or what the, the, the you know, Buddhist terminology would have been for enlightenment, Kensho awakening, but I knew that was something that um, I'm going to figure out how to do, get, realize, whatever. Um, and I had no idea how I would do it, literally just no idea. So strangely, it didn't strike me to like talk to him more and go, you know, meet who he knows or whatever. But anyway, um, so there was a seed planted there. So anyway, this went on for a few years, three or four years of uh, meditation couple times a day. I probably meditated a half an hour, a couple times a day or something more times, less at times. I was pretty consistent and I loved it, but I, I wasn't as medit as I was meditating. I wasn't like inquiring. I wasn't trying to go to a deeper place. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I just meditated. Um, and then a series of a few things happened in my life. One was a, a breakup with a part, uh, just like a short-term romance kind of thing. And interestingly, the person I was with for that short time had in my mind been the ideal image of the kind of person I would want to be with. And because the, and then it turned out to be nothing like what I would have hoped it would have been. And then the breakup was like, oh, that's not actually going to make me happy. I could see it. And it was kind of that one thing I was holding out for happiness, some partnership or something. And, and then it was, the, the rug was just pulled out. I was, I thought, oh my God, there's nothing in the in the, the usual human way of being that's going to actually satisfy me. I could tell nothing. And that shift helped. And I was really sad, really sort of devastated in a certain way. And, and at, at the same time, there was a peace that came that I hadn't experienced before. There's something that was like, something's happening here. I don't know what the heck it is. And I still feel miserable, but paradoxically, I also feel it's almost like a sublime experience. It was like that. And a few things happened. I, I had picked up a book uh, off a bookshelf that I had, I think I had to have bought it for a class. At one point, I don't even know if I opened the book. I don't know if I read it. And I flipped through it and I just found like there was one line and it said, the simplest thing, it said, non-attachment is not, not, is not non-feeling. It's non-attachment to what you're feeling. And as simple as that is, for whatever reason, that was, it was the right time for me to read that. And that wasn't, that went beyond emotion, beyond me, beyond everything. I was like, oh my God, it was like a door open. 
and and it was it was amazing that those simple words about emotion did that, but they did. Um, and I don't know how long that lasted. It was a sh- sort of a short-lived experience, but again, I was like, something's happening here. And then I picked up the Three Pillars of Zen, and that was it. I I I had the book. I'd had it on a shelf for a little while. Someone either bought it for a gift or I bought it for a class. I can't remember, but I, I don't think I ever opened the book. Anyway, I opened it up. Somehow I found the Enlightenment Stories chapter. And this is a group of 10-ish people um, describing going through Kensho, which is basically in Zen, it's stream entry, give or take. It's, it's, a, it's your first big shift. It's a true awakening. But the, the point isn't what it is or what you know, uh, stage it is or what it means. The point is, as I read each one of these, these were people describing it in their own personal um, journey, narrative, style, uh, and life story. And they talked about how they were before it, how they were coming up to it, and then what actually happened or how they could perceive it and write it. And I felt it. I was like, oh my God. And it happened again and again and again. And these were mostly lay practitioners. Um, They were people who had gone to a uh, retreat, a Zen Sashin retreat with uh, Yasutani Roshi, from what I remember. Um, one of them was Philip Kaplow, the author of the book, and he was a monk at the time, but a lot of them were lay practitioners, and they described in exquisite detail going through it, and they were all a little different, but the the trigger point of all of those experiences that they all had, which weren't, weren't experiences, they were actually shifts in identity, um, was exactly the same in each one, and I could feel it. And I was like, this right here, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it right now. I'm done. Like, this is it. Um, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to throw my life into this. I'm going to throw myself on the fire. I don't even know how, but it, it was like on, you know. So I kind of read through some of the other chapters, like trying to discern how the teacher had pointed these people. And I just kind of figured it out myself. I don't really know how. It kind of became a one-pointed uh, meditative experience for me. Um, and... And yeah, so that's kind of everything that led up to this initial series of shifts. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. You mentioned that your description of the suffering you were experiencing as a teenager wasn't how you would have articulated it at that time. Mm. I'm wondering how you would have articulated it at that time. I'm also wondering, it seems an unusual amount of suffering compared to what one commonly hears. I think teenagers often have angst of various kinds, but yours seem to be a quite a profound existential angst of some kind, which seems unusual. I'm wondering if you have any insight as to, uh, uh, looking back, as mm. to why why that might have uh, settled on you in that way. Yeah, those are really good questions. The first one, um, re- re- remind me what the first question was, sorry. The first one was, how would you have articulated it at the time? Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, a simple way of putting I can't know unless you asked me at the time, but a simple way of putting it was, I probably would have said I'm okay, which is horrible, right? The worst, the worst, there's nothing worse than having all this repressed emotion, angst, existential fear, and not being able to communicate it in any way at all. And then adding a layer of total inauthenticity to it saying, no, I'm fine, right? So that there's a personal aspect to that that I just described in the story it is like, I knew something just felt horribly wrong, but I didn't. But I, I, I didn't know that I could, there was a way out of it. I didn't know there was a way out of it. I thought this is, this is how life is. And I'm like, how am I going to live 60, 70, 80 years like this? Like, it was just unbelievable. Um, but because of social conditioning and so forth, I probably would have been, oh, I'm fine. No, everything's good. Um, so yeah, that is a personal uh, story, but I want to relate it to something 
far less personal and very universal. And that is um, one thing I talk about a lot is that the first stage of awakening really is acknowledging that you suffer, right? Um, there are people who've watched my videos and stuff on occasion and on other interviews and, and you'll see, you know, I'm fine, I don't suffer. Well, that's fine, like I'm not here to tell anyone they're suffering or not suffering. But um, if you stop long enough, if anyone stops long enough, they'll start to feel what I mean by suffering. They'll, they'll start to feel the, the self-doubt, the, the, the rustling of, um, you know, the, the echoes of all these repressed emotions start coming up, you know, and that's why a lot of us just stay very busy, stay distracted constantly. So the first movement of realization, which is actually grace, is to recognize, no, I am actually suffering. And, you know, the first noble truth is life is suffering. It's not, it's not life can be suffering for humans. It's kind of like life is suffering <laughs> or it's unsatisfactory in some significant way. And I, I think that, that it, it's important that that is a noble truth because it's something you have to actually realize authentically, authentically for yourself to, to really get this process rolling. Um, so, so hopefully that's a helpful answer, but it was, it was just one of those things where all of the suffering was there, all of the misery and the uh, angst and so forth, um, but add to it a layer of inauthenticity. So I was so distanced from myself and so stuck in intellect that, um, you know, I, the, the answer to the question, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Actually was, there was an answer. And the answer was, I'm taking myself to be a thought. That's what's wrong, <laughs> you know, in, in a sense. Uh, and then the second question, also a very good question. Um, the, I, I actually knew that that was true about myself. I mean, because I'm, all humans are empathic, but I think maybe I'm sometimes more empathic in certain ways. Like I just pick up everything from, from people around me. Um, and so I could, I could look at people and see like, no, they're, they're actually pretty happy. Like they're totally satisfied. Some people, or at least some of the time they are, I was never satisfied. I was never happy. Never, never, nothing ever felt truly relaxed for me ever. Never felt peaceful, like nothing. Um, and yeah, I could look around and see that it just wasn't like that for other people, which made it one degree lonelier in a sense. Right. I knew there was something I had to figure out. And, and, and when I was trying to do that in and as a thought that was causing the problem in the first place, you can see how what a pressure cooker that became. So, um, so it was, it was existential crisis is a great way to put it, but here's the, here's the deal. That was grace. That was grace because what it shot me, it shot me through this awakening we're going to talk about probably uh, in a way that very few people I've ever met have gone through. And it's devastating in a way, but it's, I would never in a million years trade that for anything, <laughs> for, 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 for living that way, you know, the rest of my life. Um, so, so yeah, that's suffering, angst, uh, anguish, uh, as horrible as it is, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, if you're inclined to wake up, if you're inclined to investigate your true nature is really good news. It's, it's the best fuel you'll ever find. Um, if you're not, it's very heartbreaking. If you're not inclined to wake up or you don't understand it, or you don't want to do it, or you're fighting it or any, any of that. And you feel this kind of like really intense anxiety, this angst of just being alive in this body. That's really sad. It's really heartbreaking. And I, I really try to write my book in a way that can, can apply to a wide audience that's relatable. I try to take the spiritual jargon out. Um, and because the truth of it is, in my experience now, and I wouldn't have written this book until I can say this with, with pretty, pretty much a certainty that anyone can wake up. It doesn't mean everyone will. And it doesn't mean everyone has to or should. It doesn't mean it's a better state. And it doesn't mean someone who doesn't go through this process 
is unawake or asleep. It's, it's not like that. But anyone who hears this message, who's suffering, who's tired of suffering, who somewhere inside there's a glimmer of knowing that you don't actually have to suffer, that's who this book is for. And that's what that suffering in my life was for. So I could explain it this way. Um, and then, then it's a matter of doing the work and letting go and being uncomfortable. Yeah, fascinating. You, when you say that anyone can wake up, mm -hmm. there's a certainty there that echoes a little bit, I think, the certainty perhaps of that lecturer that you encountered who told you that, you know, it's possible it's to be enlightened. Uh, you know, it seems that seems the, that certainty there is um, similar. Um, how do you come upon such a certainty? It has almost, um, it was an unflinching sort of certainty. How do you, how do you come upon that when you say anyone can, can wake up? If there's anything I'm certain of, it's that. There's, there's nothing I'm more certain of. Um, certainty has its own pitfalls, of course. Um, because when I look at when I look at anyone, I'm looking at Buddha nature, unfiltered Buddha nature. It is Buddha nature. Everything is awake nature. So of course they can. So I, I've said it this way: if somebody genuinely wants to wake up, again, it, this isn't a. It really isn't a call to action because no one has to. But if if you're hearing this message, you know if this is something you're interested in, you know it. And I can talk to somebody in for a couple of minutes and sense whether they, they're serious about it. I've, I've met people who kind of talk about awakening and I don't really think they're wanting to wake up right now. Like that's not, it's, it's more of a social thing to talk about in spiritual groups sometimes and so forth. But I've, I've also met people who are, are waking up. It's the only thing they're interested in and they have zero context for it. They're not spiritual people. They don't have the knowledge and so forth. So again, I can sort that out pretty quickly by talking to somebody what they're really serious about. And I, and I usually say something like, hey, I got really good news for you. If the most interesting thing to you is waking up to your true nature, to living on, with as reality unfiltered, to dissolving all perceptual filters, to living with the intimacy that you know is the underlying truth of reality, you definitely can do it. And all you really have to do, the most important thing, orient towards that. Give yourself permission. And there's pointers out there, but never take those to be your own experience. Never judge your own experience as wrong because someone described it in a way you think is better and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I'll always make that point that, that you absolutely can uh, orient to that. And that's the most important technique there is, is deep authenticity about what's what you want what's real for you it's important mm -hmm. to you yeah very interesting i might have lost the question sorry what, no, no. the question was about uh certainty and oh yeah so that certainty comes from a place where i think we can circle around and talk about this after i talk about the the rest of the awakening that i didn't talk about in the book um but at some point there's only empty nature left and I can't even tell you what that is. It's just not even something I can talk about, but it's everything you see. It's right in front of your face all the time. It's everything that's felt, seen, smelled, tasted. It's even the movement of thought. It's reality just as it is. And um, that empty nature is looking me in the face at all times and you, you too. Um, and so I'm talking to empty nature, from empty nature, as empty nature. The words are made out of empty nature. 
And um, from that, it's actually not hard to wake up. It's not hard. If, if that's what somebody really wants to do and wants to orient towards it, just like Christ said, knock and it will be open to you. I've seen it again and again and again and again. Um, so yeah, the certainty comes from that, that you already are that. You don't have to go anywhere to wake up. Enlightenment is an event in the, is not an event in the future and it's not even an event. So when I look at someone, I don't see an unawake person. I can't see that. I only see awake nature and that's it. So yeah, it's like if someone's standing in front of a house and I say, and they're like, ah, I don't know if I could build a house, you know, and they have the hammer in their hand. I can tell they just finished. I'm like, man, just turn around. You built the house. Like you, you're here really. It really is like that. So um, now the key is you can, you can believe that what I just said, but if it's, if it's actually realized thoroughly, then it's just as simple as, you know, the sun rises uh, in the East and sets in the West or whatever. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Jesus there. Of course, you have this profound experience of uh, Buddha nature, seeing Buddha nature wherever you look, as you're describing. And I'm, I suppose the, the, my curiosity there is somebody who's had a profound experience, say religious conversion in, in terms of Christianity, for example, might see, uh, in a certain sense, God's love everywhere, or might see God's grace in every circumstance and so on and so forth. I'm curious what makes your... Um, experience of your of your perception different from an equally certain say religious convert in a christian context uh, just as an example um, and also are you saying that your subjective experience or to what degree do you are you taking your subjective experience as saying something about objective reality in other words you, you see buddha nature everywhere but it doesn't necessarily mean that buddha nature is everywhere and the same thing that, um, you know, a Christian person might see uh, a different sort of filter with, with the same degree of certainty and so on, and, and perhaps profundity. Okay. So, um, yeah, if somebody were to describe um, God's grace everywhere as everything, etc., cetera, um, they may mean what I'm talking about, for sure. Because when I'm talking about this as Buddha nature, I'm not talking about a concept of Buddha nature. I'm, not, I'm just using that convenient term in this setting for people who probably are somewhat familiar with the term or whatever, I could say unfiltered reality. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, if I were to talk with that person and there was an, a practical reason for me to actually be concerned at all with what their experience is. And the only time that happens for me is when they ask me directly, I don't give advice to people until they ask. And sometimes people re will report a whole bunch of their experiences and then, and I'll be like, great, that's beautiful. And they're like, well, well what do you think about it? <laughs> like the next thing they ask me and I'm like well what are you trying to do you know where are you trying to go what, what's your sense of whatever so um so I wouldn't necessarily compare myself to anything and I don't need to or this experience but if I were curious about it I would just talk to that person I think I pretty quickly could discern what their level of realization is about what they're saying because because you can say this stuff all day long right in fact as I wrote in my book I mean there have been and are um, teachers who are not really spiritual teachers, they're, they're more like manipulators. They use this terminology to manipulate people, right? Because it's very true. People love to hear about peace and oneness and unity. And, you know, uh, and, and that can be quite manipulative. And I've met many people who are reasonably serious spiritual seekers, but they've just fallen into these traps. Someone just recently told me for 10 years, she was in a trap like this with a group of, of people who, and, and probably got 
good experience and good practice out of it, but it turned out to be not the best sort of teacher sort of thing. Um, so, so yeah, the, the words, um, anyone can say these words. The question is the, 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 um, the matter of realization. So uh, this leads kind of to the next question you asked in, in that sort of um, that long question you asked. And it had to do, what I wanted to say was, when I talk about this as everything is awake nature, everything is Buddha nature, or I could even say empty nature, um, there's a very important aspect to it that if it's not clear with somebody, that's not um, thoroughgoing realization. And that is no self. The, the, the distinct, obvious, undeniable realization of no self and, and its implications, what it actually means. Because you can glimpse no self, you can sense that there's no self, you can intellectually figure out there's no self, right? Through, through a, a short bit of self-inquiry. But the undeniable truth of there actually being no self and no selves, and that it's not just true for quote unquote me, you, everyone that walks the face of the earth, it's literally the way it is. There is just nothing like a self. So there's no subjectivity. So that leads into your question about subjectivity. When you say your subjective experience, that's always a weird one for me because I don't have one. Like if I'm honest, there's no subjective experience anymore at all. There's sounds, sensations, thoughts, things move around, there's movement. Since there's nothing, there's nothing between those. There's nothing holding them together, nothing observing them. Um, there's not there's no one for whom this is occurring. And this this can even be taken by the mind as a subjective experience of that, but it's not a subjective experience. It's very clear. And then, and the weird thing is even objective doesn't make much sense anymore because after the shift, we can talk about like later refinements, but the shift into non-dual or actually the shift out of duality, um, there's no subject object anymore. They, they don't even make sense. It's um, very obviously just not like that. And that's not a mystical experience. It's not a, it's nothing personal. It's, it's actually the way the world looks all of a sudden. It's just like, oh my God, that's how this is and couldn't be other. And um so with that, there really is no subjective and objective. So to talk about an internal world and an external world literally stops making sense at some point. And this is part of no self. This, is, this isn't the, the clear, um, undeniable, full, um, full clarification of no self, but it's a very important part of it, mm. the, the non-dual experience. And it's not an experience, the, the realization of non-dual, the experience is subject object. That's an experience that's created by the mind non-dual is just a word for that not being there um so yeah yes and that, that's a point you make in your book that um th in trying to express these things through language one is inevitably going to have to make caveats like you made you know you, you've said it this way but you don't mean to imply this and so on and you know that that's a point you make in your book and i you also detail it's very interesting these various stages as you as you uh, alluded to of awakening and development, something I'd like to ask you uh, about. Um, I suppose uh, one last question on that on that previous theme, Eric, um, I'm reminded of Eric Hoffer. Have you ever uh, read Eric Hoffer, his book, True Believer? He says in there that the, I think it's the power of the effectiveness, one of those sorts of words, of a doctrine is not in its accuracy, but in its certitude. Mm. And in asking you about the source of your certitude or certainty in a certain sense for with making a claim like you know anyone can wake up anyone can can wake up i'm attempting to establish if you want the line of authority 
mm. uh, behind that claim. And it seems that it appears that way to you, therefore it's true, is the line of authority. It doesn't necessarily invalidate the claim. It just, in a certain sense, clarifies the, the line of authority. Would, that, would, you, would you say that's a fair, a fair uh, a summary? I would say it's, it's so obvious that the, the awakeness is already there. I don't even know how it could be a, an impression or anything like that. It's, like, it, it's so hard to talk about this, but um, I can tell you in the relative sense, nothing I've seen, nothing I've seen has contradicted that. In fact, the more people I come in contact with, the more it's just reinforced. Let me say, I want to add one thing though. When I say anyone can wake up, let me say it this way. Anyone who genuinely wants to wake up, if that's what they really want, if that's what they're really oriented towards, not only can they, they, they will. So there's another degree of certainty. <laughs> it's easy to get hung up on certainty. It is, especially it seems that it's such a crucial, as crucial aspect of, um, I suppose, uh, these sorts of mystical, spiritual, kind of religious matters is, is certainty. Um, you know, uh, I suppose, Maybe we're just uh, expressing it differently, but I suppose it, see, it, it, it puzzles me a little bit how you can say anything more than everyone that you've seen so far who really wanted to wake up, woke up, or looks like they're pretty close. It's, it's, I'm not sure quite how you make the leap to anyone can wake up or anyone who really wants to wake up will wake up. I'm not quite yeah. sure how you can make that leap. I'm not um, saying that I'm not saying uh, you yeah. shouldn't. I'm saying I'm not sure how you I'm curious in the process of your thought that because leads you it, to make it, that statement. It's not a thought. It's anyone who's hearing this message is already everything. So I'm talking right to them. And I assure you, whoever's hearing this, no matter what doubts you have in your mind, you can wake up. Um, because you're already awake. It's already there. It's already there. It's just a matter of removing perceptual filters. Um, some inquiry. Uh, I, I can tell you that there, there can be a barrier to, to hearing that message, um, potentially. And it would be something like the fixation on spirituality being special. That goes away very late in realization. But some people really still have that, even who are very realized and great teachers and so forth. But I can just sense it. They, they're still, it's still a thing for them. It's like, at some point, there's not there's not even realization. It's the real real enlightened and unenlightened. There's not even a difference anymore. There's just what is. There's just this. Very very simple. Very straightforward. Um, and you know, it's if if it's if it's a I would say if anyone's hearing this and it sounds like a, a difficult message or an offensive message that anyone can wake up, I would just ask yourself like look inside and see is there am I holding on to some specialness because I am involved in a certain group or I've had my own experiences. Is there something about me that, that wants to use waking up to become, to have special merit, to have a special uh, uh, stance in the world? Um, because all of that has to go away and it will go away with realization. Realization is nothing special at all. And, and there's another reason why it's, it's definitely possible, you know, for, for anyone who's too serious about it, uh, because it isn't special. It's, it's, not, um, it's not an exalted state. Um, it doesn't give you superhuman powers. It's, it's nothing like that. It's just experiencing reality as it actually is which is what you are mm. that makes sense do you mean to imply that questioning the claim that everyone can wake up is uh into or questioning it in the sense of attempting to establish the line of authority behind the claim um does that is that necessarily taking offense at the message 
no, 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 no. I think uh, I don't. I don't think you're doing it. I'm just. I'm just noticing like the the curiosity about that. The sort. It's a sort of a skepticism, right? Like, and the mind just has that signature of skepticism often. And it's interesting to me now, like generally, that the one thing we would be the most skeptical about is the one thing that's our true nature. Everything else is is, is made up. Right, all the all the, the the sense of time, the sense of space, the sense of doership, the sense of agency, those all turn out to be made up, and realization is the only thing that is. So, from that, does that make sense? From that standpoint, how could it be other? So, um, so yeah, all, all I'm saying is, if if somebody were to have a, uh, you know, an idea that, well, but it can't be everyone, right? Like, I would just say, well, why not? What do you know about everyone? What do you know about anyone but yourself? Like, you can only know. Your own direct immediate experience right um and it's also like how deeply do you truly believe that your true nature is buddha nature is awake nature is enlightened nature and if you believe it 100 i don't want to say believe if it's if it's obvious 100 then how is it not true for everyone because once you go through no self you realize there aren't cells there's not a self here, there's not self there, there's not a self anywhere. So there's just awake nature, clearly and simply. Does that make sense? It's, it's subtle stuff we're talking about, so it's hard to get at it. Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Of course, to the unawakened, if we, you know, to use the, the term incorrectly, um, from your point of view, I can see that that is evident. Uh, but of course, most people are laboring under a different certainty. To, to most people, they're equally as convinced and it's equally as self-evident that the subject-object uh, distinction, duality, for example, is true. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say that you're wrong and they're right, or it's equally right, you know, because some people think the world's flat, some people think the world's round. They're probably not both right to an equal mm -hmm. amount. They can both be very certain, and they can, uh, but they may not both. I'm not suggesting that just because certainty equates truth. In fact, I'm, in fact, I'm questioning that precisely. If, if your experience is the authority for truth, then it puts you on perhaps something of a level playing field with, with all those who think something else with the same degree of certainty. Yeah, so, so something like you mentioned someone who would experience the subject-object construct, and statistically speaking, most people would experience it that way, right? Does that make sense? Of course, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say if I'm engaging that person and it's, we're talking about and moving through the process of awakening, I don't negate it. I just say, let's look closely at it. Let's see what's that, what's that made of? What are you referencing? Um, I did this all week long with, with people. And, and by the end of the week, they were not seeing it anymore. They were referencing, whoa, it's actually not solid. Not like I thought it was. Um, so uh, yeah, so I don't negate anyone's... Uh, um, level of identity wherever they're taking identity from is totally fine it doesn't matter there's, there's no right or wrong about it if you're taking identity from constructs thought constructs from perceptual filters and that you're taking that to be true when i say identity i mean the, the broad term of identity the identity of the way the world actually looks and is um, if you're taking um uh, like truth from that as a mental construct that's fine let's just look at it so i would never threat i would never push that with somebody who didn't want to wake up because that's really destabilizing they don't don't like it and I wouldn't do it but somebody who does want to wake up who's interested in this process who's interested in looking um they very quickly see doesn't really take that long usually 
um, to see that, oh, that is an overlay. A sense of subject object is a thought. Um, and there are subtle ways to get at that, but it becomes quite obvious to them, you know? And um, so that's how I would work with it. I wouldn't say, no, that's wrong. It's not like that. No, I would never say that. It, it's more like it, in the way you're perceiving right now, it is like that. It's exactly like that. And it's fine to be like that. It's, it's completely fine. This is the whole relative and absolute thing. In the, in the relative sense, yeah, things are, um, some things are more true, some things are less true in the relative and everything's relative to everything else. Um, but I think when realization is clear, then there's no rejection of any level of the relative either at all. Why, why, why should there be? Because the relative is the absolute and the absolute is the relative. So I don't have to you know, try to pick apart what someone's saying and saying, this part of your experience is wrong and this is right. I'm just like, that, that's your experience. That's perfectly fine. Awesome. Let's look closer at it, see what happens. You're proposing that uh, if somebody examines their experience closely, then what they're likely to find uh, is they're likely to move in the direction of awakening as, as you write about it in the book. And, and upon being fully awakened, mm -hmm. there's a certain sense in which one sees everything as Buddha nature and that there's something about that which strongly suggests uh, or clearly shows um, perhaps to the individual, to the, to, the, to the individual that anyone can be awakened or, and if any, indeed, if anyone wants to, they, they will be. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious then if we can uh, talk a bit about that period of your life uh, from, you know, 19 onwards uh, and the unfolding awakenings uh, or levels of awakening or experiences as they unfolded that occurred to you, um, that inquiry process or that, you know, looking close process that you went through. Could you mm -hmm. walk us through a little bit the, were you doing the mantra meditation the whole time? Can you t walk us through a little bit, I suppose, the, the method or the techniques that you were exploring at that time? Um, and uh, you, you mentioned you were practicing formally, let's say, meditating formally about half an hour, twice a day, for example. Could you, you know, walk us through a little bit about that, the, the, ch the shifts that occurred, barriers mm. that occurred? You write very interestingly in the book about post-awakening experiences, and that's perhaps, perhaps the next topic, but that's very fascinating. I'd love to ask you about that. Um, but in terms of the initial awakenings and then the subsequent openings, mm. could you walk us through uh, what went on there? Uh, so, yeah, after reading the Three Pillars of Zen, reading those stories, and trying to discern what the teacher was actually saying to, for people to do, to become one-pointed, to not separate yourself from your practice. Or in the book, it was a lot of times it was move, the first koan often you work on in Renzai Zen. Um, I just discerned this way of becoming one-pointed where uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't allowing myself to go down a mind road anymore at all. The, the distracting thoughts, the, the doubt thoughts, the thoughts that wanted to conceptualize, that wanted to just run off in every direction. I just noticed there was a way of not really allowing that. And interestingly, it wasn't by avoiding or pushing thoughts away. It was more like watching them so closely and orienting directly toward them that it just became very singular, very one-pointed. And then it was obvious that the one doing that was none other than that singular point, which was none other than the arising thoughts. There was no there was no separation in consciousness. I could say that, and so it just became a singular conscious experience, and then it sort of spread almost. It was again, it was there's there wasn't thoughts of dimension or image thoughts much at all. In fact, the thoughts became very very quiet, and there was a way of just 
noticing there's only that conscious material that those thoughts are all rising in and dissolving back into. Uh, and that was incredibly enjoyable. Like I thought, with the moment I recognized what that was, when the sense of the self apart in thought, trying to chase around other thoughts and, you know, figure life out and stuff, when that just disappeared, it was like true, true bliss. It was really wonderful. It wasn't um, an ecstatic experience, but it was, it was neutral. And it was very clear that all of the things I had been chasing around, all everything I always wanted, I thought I wanted, were surrogates for this, <clears throat> excuse me, for this. Um, so at that point, it was like, oh, just this. No thoughts about it. And some people call this, by the way, the pure sense of I am. It didn't strike me that way. Because to me, even then, I think it would have been a thought still. I would have considered that a thought. But it was just pure, unbound consciousness, aliveness, being, awakeness, awareness. And I thought, I will do this all the time. <laughs> I'll do this when I'm not working or not at school or whatever. I'll come home and just sit like this because I knew just with that same sort of certainty, it was, this is more real than what I thought was here before. All the thoughts were happening in this and now I am this, or there is only this. So that was so obvious. I thought, oh, I mean, I can't miss it. It's not a technique, it's, it's here. It's where the technique ended, you know? And so, yeah, I, I knew I could close my eyes and be there and I would do that pretty much for the rest of my life because I thought, oh, this is wonderful, you know? And um, I sat in it one night for a long time. Uh, and then I woke up the next day and went to sit and closed my eyes and it was there immediately. Just that pure bliss of consciousness, pure consciousness, unbound. Everything is consciousness. And then a whole different thing happened. And this I didn't put in the book. Um, you could almost say in one sense, I went away into the consciousness before. It just became consciousness. Every, the world and me was replaced by consciousness. Seeking was replaced by consciousness, all of it. And that's the first part. The second part was more like, the whole entire world itself went away, like existence went away, even awareness went away, everything went away completely. And then the self-structure was gone and never came back. It was the most, that is the most obvious thing. No self is, is, is where the certainty really comes from, I guess, is the best way of saying it, the certainty you're talking about. Um, it's a certainty of what's not there, but what's not there is the loudest thing in the room at all times. It's, I can't forget that it's like that. There's no mistaking it. It's not subtle. Um, it's like an inferno that just burns up everything all the time, every trace of everything. And um, it was very clear at that point. You know, I'm going to back up. I actually had a thought after that consciousness experience, that first stage, what I would call Ken Show, um, typically. Um, it was very clear. And I, I remember knowing this is what spiritual seekers want. And then I remember thinking, this is really weird that I know that because I didn't know any spiritual seekers and I didn't really have any, I didn't know, I don't know why I knew that. And I was like, but this is what people want, especially spiritual seekers. This is what they're looking for. Then the next day when that happened, I had the distinct knowing that this is actually what people don't want. <laughs> people are avoiding this and not because it's bad. It's not bad or good. There's just nothing for the person in it. There's nothing for the individual in it. There's nothing for the self in it because there's no self. So what I noticed, I, what I knew then, and I could see in a very fundamental level is the collective conscious experience of being human, all of it, all the aspects of it, the doubts that are there, the, um, the control mechanisms, the repression of emotion, all of that was actually there to prevent us from seeing this truth of no self. Um, 
and it, it wasn't uncomfortable. I mean, it was, for me, it was home. It, it was homeless home. There's no home to it, but it's, it was, yes, this is the, this is how it actually is. And it's not actually any which way either. That's the other weird thing about this. Um, but I knew that this was, this was true. And I also knew, I'm, I hesitate to say this publicly. I've said it a few times to people, but not commonly. It was at that moment there, I could see multiple lives lined up that I had gone through this over and over and over. And each time it had progressed a little more. And I knew that in this lifetime, I was going to go back through conditioning and look at it exquisitely closely so that I could explain it. I, I, I'm telling you, like the weirdest thing is I don't, I don't have premonitions. I don't have like dreams where I know things. I don't, I don't have anything like that, but this time it was very obvious. And it was also like a cringe. I'm like, oh God, I don't, I, it's like, I don't want to do what I'm going to have to do because conditioning is so heavy and I can see how easy it is to just not be in conditioning by not being, by recognizing the no self of reality. Um, but I also knew that's not what I'm going to do this time. I'm going to go back through it. Um, and so that no self realization, which is not a, it's not a experience. Uh, it doesn't come and go. It's not a knowing in any classic sense. It's, it's nothing cognitive. It's not an intellectual understanding that never went away. It's, it can't go away. It's, it's actually the case. This is that weird thing that sounds almost arrogant to hear or, or annoying to hear, but it's just so obviously true that it's actually true for everyone. It's true for everyone. There is no self anywhere. There never has been, there never could be, there never will be, not in the way our, our minds construct it and in the way we instinctually start to feel it. That's just not there. Um, and so that was so obvious that, and it was also obvious that almost no one wants to know that. Um, Adi Ashanti has said it this way, it's, it's not wantable. And, and I agree with that, um, but it is where this goes. Bernadette Roberts said it, she had a book and it's called No Self or Realization of No Self or something like that. But I read like one and a half pages of it. I'm like, oh yeah, she totally knows what this is. She's, she's gone through it. Um, and interestingly, she kept talking about Catholicism even after it and so forth. But again, the conventional self, the conventional person, the seeming person, the one that says I, the one that seems to make decisions and all that, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. You don't have to negate that anymore at all. You don't have to wrestle with it either. So, so I just went and lived after that. It was like everything was over. Spirituality was over. Seeking was over. I was over. <laughs> um, what else is there to do? We just live, right? So I just went and lived and just did my thing. Now, what's interesting is it never even dawned on me to talk about this, the realization at all, the, the awakening. I didn't, I think I might've mentioned it to one or two people right after it happened. And then I just never talked about it again, because I don't know why I, I didn't even cross my mind that anyone would want to know about this, you know, and I still sometimes wonder if people really want to know, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, for 15 years, I didn't talk about it at all, really, even to someone I was married to, like it just didn't even come up. Um, even to my Zen teacher, I went and got a Zen teacher after this and I went through koans and I remember him being surprised. I was good at the koans, you know, it was like, they were, not, <laughs> they were that hard for me, but, but I never, it never crossed my mind. It blows me away now. It never crossed my mind to even mention to him that this happened. So weird. Um, so no self is a very strange place to live. That's all I can say. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's how that played out. And then 15 years or so later, I started just noticing people would start waking up around me. Like I'd be talking about 
whatever. I wouldn't wouldn't try to bring up a spiritual topic or anything, but something about the conversation would just go a certain way, you know. And then people started waking up, and um, I started meeting people all over the place who were waking up. Um, Incredible. Uh, thank you very much for sharing all that. How long did it take your Zen teacher to notice? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't, I, I did develop a formal teacher student thing with him to work on koans, but I, I never really talked to him in great detail about any of it. I, it was just kind of a thing I did for a couple of years while I was in medical training. So yeah, I never really talked to him about that. And uh, I don't know. I just, I think I just wanted to sample it. I wanted to sample the, the, the Zen experience, you know, go and do sashins, feel the pain, do the, to the, the doksan, work on koans. And, but it, the, to be honest, it was like the koans to me, I, I didn't get why they were hard. Like I didn't understand that they were already solved. Like it was, that's how it felt to me. It was like, they were already broken open. And I don't mean to minimize the value of going through it. Cause there's a huge value to going through it, but I'd already gone through it. I just went through it in a different way. And then after that, it's like all the koans just kind of open themselves very quickly. Um, some, some you can feel a little stickiness with, and, and that's good because it's like an emotional thing sometimes, or but you're fixated in the absolute versus being fixated in the relative and vice versa. And they all have a little different purposes, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he always gave me really good feedback, but even that I didn't, there's nothing collecting that that cares about it. There's no, there's just no interest in spirituality. As I told you before, it's really weird. I don't, I don't have any philosophical interest in sp spirituality or, uh, cognitive interest in it and so sometimes it's hard because someone will ask me well is what you're saying compared to this is it more like this or that like and then they'll give me some terminology from a different sect of buddhism or something and i'm like i don't know what does it mean to you you know i'm only interested in what your experience is right now or what my experience is describing it and talking from it if, if that helps people pointing or whatever um so yeah it definitely ended for me like this the, the anything about spirituality being special being anything it, it's just it, it it is life happening like i can see now clearly what it's all pointing to what the, the the great teachers and so forth what they're pointing to is very clear and obvious now all the time but at some point it's like well, what's the point of talking about it unless again somebody's wanting to wake up um and then it can be helpful to talk in certain ways hmm. that's yeah fascinating and this was a, is this the uh, series of events that occurred around the age of 24 prior to your medical training yeah uh, that experience of, of those past lives uh did you also have a sense of future lives did you have a sense of that no you're shaking your head and did you have were you able to detect details of those past lives or was it more a sense of how this particular current of awakening had played out through those lives yeah it was it was like the second the latter there was no details of what I, I, there were there were sort of yeah there were little hazy bits i think around it but but the clear the 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 clear and obvious energetic knowing was that these had all and i can't even say they were in the past they could be parallel i don't really know because in that place of knowing there's not time or space so i don't know uh but there was a clear progression one by one by one of some kind of incarnations hmm strange because i don't ever have experiences like that but it's still that's still obvious to me i don't i don't know why you can still feel that that context of that current even now mm -hmm. wow amazing may i ask you a little bit about the if you want consequences of that awakening experience yeah 
everybody experiences the post-awakening and, and post no self-realization even differently to some degree, but there are common, there are definitely commonalities. And one is um, everything that's been repressed will come completely to the surface, come into consciousness. Um, and you also still have behavioral patterns that have a lot of momentum that uh, may not be the most adaptive and so forth. And so it's, 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 it's quite, it can be quite painful really to go through all of this because you see yourself metabolizing all this pain, this repression, noticing the, the uh, forces of delusion operating, even though you can see that there's no one that's actually happening to, and yet you can't not feel it. It's, there's just no filters anymore. So it's, it just fully embodies, you know, your body just embodies all of the pain in a sense. Um, and some people go through a lot of chronic pain with, with this. Um, I didn't have a lot of chronic pain, but I did have definitely episodes of pain and resistance to pain and working through the resistance to pain and, and decompressing that and seeing what the pain actually is and um, a ton of emotion work. Like you just, you just got to do that stuff. You know, it's, um, and um, a lot of meditation, a lot of sitting. Yeah. You mentioned that interest in spirituality evaporated. It was it was over. Did any interests in anything else remain? Um, yeah, relative interest. Like um, I w I've always been a curious person. I've always liked science, uh, interested in scientific theory. Um, it, more more like really in, honestly interested in the conditioning. Interested in the conditioning. What what the roots of suffering are. What delusion is. Um, but, but energetically, like truly indirect experience, not, not cognitively. Like I didn't really overtly think about this too much, write it out and things like that. I, it was more like watching how the mind moves, watching where delusions start to form, how they dissipate, um, how inquiry works. Uh, but this just sort of played out automatically in me. So the, the interest really has been in suffering and what causes it. Because, because the, the thing about realization, I think at one point you earlier in our interview, you mentioned that sort of completion of realization or something like you, I'm not sure what word you use, but I wanted to clarify that there is a, there's no end to realization that I've seen. Um, but there is a definite finality in one sense, and that is the self. The, the, there's a very distinct clear end of what was seen to be self what was what was sensed as self i'm sorry um and to me i, I would say if that if the realization of no self is clear the non-dual aspect is clear the the non-inherent aspect is clear there's equanimity um the suffering really does end there but but it's a weird thing because the suffering ends because the individual ends so then after that it's not like the roots of suffering aren't there it's not like the body can't feel pain. The body can definitely feel pain. There's no doubt about that. Um, and resistance feels in a sense, even it's magnified because it's so obviously not natural, I guess, I, for lack of a better way of saying it, which is great because that's how it dissolves and it's clarified and so forth. But, um, but it can be, an, I should say it can be an intense process afterwards for no one, but it's still, it's still there. I mean, it's paradoxical. Yeah. Amazing. Did you retain any interest in hobbies or things like preferences in food? Uh, evidently, you, you went on to have, you know, to, be, to, to get married. So I guess you retained an interest or a drive 
towards sex and relationship, for example. Yeah, that that definitely dr dramatically reduces for sure. Um, especially like, sexual interest is a, is a good. I like that question because a lot of people don't talk about it, but um, it definitely changes. So what I would say is we don't realize, or I I'll just put it in my own experience. I didn't realize how much of like sexual interest and all that was mental was produced by the mind in non-sexual experiences and became becomes a preoccupation and there's a whole bunch of reasons for this i mean it's it's a very convenient distraction it's a very convenient thing for the ego to get a hold of and endlessly seek and all that but um that went away what didn't go away was in the moment when the body physiologically responds to another body that can still happen for sure but there have been times where i'm like i wonder if i have no sex drive at all anymore it's just it's just so not here but then in the moment it can happen and it works fine um, for me, for others, I've heard it goes completely away, uh, even even in interpersonal experiences. Um, but it dramatically reduces the 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 obsession with sex, the the preoccupation, fantasy, all that. Uh, food is still enjoyable when I eat food. It's you know I, I like the taste of food. It's just um, it's it doesn't have like a an unnecessarily um, large charge about it anymore i think is the best way of saying it um the body mind still enjoys things it still has things it seems to prefer and not prefer um the difference is that the the co the, the construct the cognitive construct of the self um for whom all that seemed to be happening which would magnify it endlessly and drag it through time that's gone so things are very singular in the moment here and gone here and gone here and gone um, that's, that's the difference. And it does calm more and more and more over time, just as emotion calms to, to become very, very quiet. I appreciate your willingness to talk a bit about the sex, uh, aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, it is something I think that's rarely discussed, uh, personally, uh, although in this, in the traditions they make, they, there are various different statements made about it, but you know, one, one never knows what to believe, but, um, so it's interesting to hear your direct experience. Does that mean then that um if a certain sort of proximity is you still res you still res respond erotically to that mm -hmm. um is there an impulse then to initiate sex and it, at what point uh presumably one would have to enter that sort of a proximity um do you uh, have any impulse to initiate sex and perhaps a related question if you were to be by yourself when it, would any sexual feeling uh, or impulse arise without the stimulus of uh, a human body in that sort of erotic context? Yeah, I think it, it definitely can arise uh, if I'm not around another physical person, but it would be an, seeing an image or something that reminds me. And so that becomes interesting to me in the way, cog the, the way consciousness um, turns a, a, a just like a very simple set of conditions. Uh, it can turn it into um, uh, um, a pattern of thinking, a pattern of mind, and a pattern of seeking. So I'm always really interested in how that happens. And I watch it closely. So it can happen, but often it's deconstructed very quickly when I see like, oh, a certain shape causes this certain um, mental process to start. But if I look closely at the shape and I see that it's non-dual nature and it's dissolving into everything and now there's just everythingness again. So um, it, it, I would say it could happen in the moment when I'm not around somebody, like there could be a, an interest or desire or some physical experience, but it's very fleeting typically. And I would say it's far, far, far less common than it used to be. Um, with somebody, um, 
Yeah, I had to think about that. Would I initiate it? Um, you know, it really is very spontaneous now. Like the the sense of non doership, uh, the sense that there's no actual agent acting upon an outside world, um, makes it hard to answer questions like that because I could I could say sure I could look back through an experience I had and say yeah I initiated it, but in the moment it just feels like the moment is doing that, and this is again part of the really part of the realization of non dual. Um, and, and no self makes it even clearer, but the, the sense that as soon as the sense of an external internal world go away and there's only sense phenomenon just vividly arising out of nothing and, and that's all there is, um, not here, not there, not in space, incredibly intimate, um, the next step often uh, that just comes spontaneously sometimes and sometimes a little inquiry helps is, is this sense that, oh my gosh, there's no one actually doing this. There's no doer. There's nothing apart doing. And so it, it's all just doing itself. And then what comes with that often is a sense of um, complete exertion of the universe. The whole universe is doing it. The universe took a step. The universe coughed. The universe spoke. It feels as if the whole, all of everything is coming together to, to create this experience. And then this one, and then this one. So um, what I would say, it's a, it's a funny way of saying it, but is that there's no chooser, there's no sense of being a chooser, but there is a sense of choice, but there's no one making it. This, this, this moment, this set of conditions is, is making its own choice and you're, you're just fully immersed completely in it. There's no sense of separation from it. So, so it's all one doing, one happening, and that can initiate sex, it can initiate sleep, it can initiate walking, anything. Hmm. Perhaps then my last question on it, why doesn't the, uh, if you want, deconstruction, that instant deconstruction that you mentioned would hap happens if you see a same image or, you, you know, you're simulated in that sort of a way, it immediately sort of deconstructs. Why doesn't that happen even in the presence of a physical partner, that sort of erotic stimulus? And also, as you've observed the, the sort of, I suppose, could we say the um, peristalsis of this universal um movement uh the way you're describing the the experience of action basically mm -hmm. you know from the outside someone looking may see uh, sex was initiated by you let's say for example mm -hmm. do you have any sense of what is there any experience that initiates that uh, it, that you can detect is there any impulse if you want that initiates that say um an erotic uh uh, pressure or something that uh, initiates the act. So it's two questions really. How how can that act be sustained with a person when it's not sustained with an image, I suppose, on the one hand? Hmm. What's different there? And secondly, I suppose, at what point does the impulse to what would look from the outside, perhaps, like initiate sex arise? Presumably prior to the contact which is a re re required condition of the erotic response. Mm, yeah. Uh, so um, I might answer that in the backwards order, but uh, one um, thing that came to me as you were speaking was um, what's different in uh, an image of a sexual image arising like in the mind and then the actual physical experience of it um, and why the, the, the mind stuff gets deconstructed so quickly. Um, because that the, the introduction of will into consciousness, uh, the pushing and pulling in consciousness is what 
um, perpetuates and keeps this sense of a pull of attention itself into consciousness, the storyline, the narrative, and all of that. So there's a there's a there's an interest in actually watching this play out, but also it naturally comes to a place of a sort of consciousness equilibrium where there's no content in consciousness. That happens naturally because the thoughts and what the thoughts actually represent are seen to be ghosts, like literally just not what's happening. But in the physical experience, even though we can, in a sense, we can even go beyond um, and deconstruct the physical experience of reality, it's still far more real than the thoughts, the, the, the thought images. Um, so, so there's a willingness, I guess you could say, to engage the physical world unreservedly. Um, and there's not an unwillingness to engage the thought world, but there's a willingness to see, see it for what it actually is and, and not use it to ignore the physical world that's occurring in that moment. So in the moment an image of sexual interest or something might arise, um, that, that could easily be deconstructed, just seeing that it's, a, it's an image arising from certain conditions set up a certain way that trigger a, a movement in mind. And there's a fascination with that, but it'll just dissolve. And then there's just presence again, the, the, the sense world, the, the, the sort of immediate sensory experience of just being alive right now, which is actually, can I swear here? Can I say a swear word? Certainly. Yeah, that's, I've used the term, that's like the universe fucking itself, you know, and it really is, and, and that's, it's just that enjoyable sometimes, like the, the vibration of aliveness with no separation, no one apart from it, no one noticing it, just complete immersion of the universe coming forth as this is so much more enjoyable than in any image, even if it's a sexual image or any kind of image. So that, that very quickly, the attention just returns to this. Now, if you add to that an actual sexual situation, then it's the universe fucking itself squared. So why not? You know, it's it, it's quite enjoyable. Um, and but it does also sort of deconstruct into this one taste. Even so, so for me, I, I would just say it this way: sex is not special anymore. It used to have a heavy charge and it had a lot of meaning to it and a lot of different things that had to do with validation and lots of stuff really uh, um, charged the 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 topic of sex, whether it's an actual experience of sex or a mental image of sex etc. That's gone. And so the enjoyment of just a physical experience with another human to me isn't really that different than this experience right now. Actually, it's the, the, the immersion, the intimacy is still just this. Um, so uh, the way it would be initiated, just like everything here is being initiated, it's, it's self-initiating. It's, it's self-propagating and self-releasing. The sound, the sensations, the colors and forms and shapes, they are just self self-creating self-announcing and just completely gone uh, and that seems to just propagate in a way that seems to create a new narrative in the next moment in the next moment in the next moment this is the way the mind thinks about it but the way it's experienced is it's not even like i'm moving through space or moving through the universe the, move, the universe is just moving through here that's the actual experience of it and so then all of a sudden the universe starts doing something different that looks like eating or looks like having sex or looks like mowing the lawn. And it's just like, oh, this is what's happening now. Oh, this is what's happening now. This is what's happening. And again, the interest is still there about any kind of delusion, reservation, emotional repression. Like uh, I really try to stay vigilant about that, that if, if such a situation that could be charged like a sexual situation or uh, uh, having a conversation with someone that's challenging, um, I'm really looking like, is there a reservation here? Is there some tendency to move into mind, to intellectualize this, to make it into something 
um, and, uh, and thus avoid the full immersion into the truth of reality, the momentary truth of reality. Uh, so it, it really does just happen. It just flows. There's a smell, there's a sensation, there's a movement, there's a shape, a form, and the next thing, there's sex. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's my way of experiencing it. Yeah, I think I really, I very much appreciate your willingness to talk about it. Actually, mm -hmm. it's um, it is very interesting, and I think a, a very important uh, subject. Actually, mm -hmm. especially in this context, um, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question. In your experience, well, perhaps I'll put it this way: one way of conceiving of why we do things, why a person does something, is a sort of um, hierarchy of values in a certain sense. Why do this rather than that? Why eat rather than starve to death, for example, at a basic level? This sort of hierarchy, this uh, informed by sort of pleasure pain calculation in a certain sense, perhaps, or death avoidance. I know you've talked a bit about that, about fear of death being quite a motivator actually for a lot of behavior that you one wouldn't necessarily directly associate with death, actually. Given that Given your experience and what you've what you've gone through and where and where it is you've arrived, and I, and I understand all, all of those statements are laden with uh, you know linguistic uh, problems, so I don't mean to lay it on you in that way. But how do you experience the ordering principle of what to do next? How do you experience whether to eat or not, or uh, whether to say yes to an invitation to come on a podcast, for instance, or not, or what T-shirt to wear today? Um, et cetera, et cetera, where, where, when to go to bed, uh, if to go to bed, uh, you know, if to respond to your alarm clock in the morning and so on and so forth. Um, presumably there's some latent or residual conditioning that enables that uh, display to articulate. Uh, mm -hmm. You're also using the English language. So presumably there's some kind of conditioning there in the sense of learning uh, that enables that to articulate. What's, what's, I suppose, your subjective experience, and I, I mean that in the sense that I'm not asking you to necessarily make a philosophical statement, but how do you see that, or how do you, uh, how do you experience that whole uh, array of uh, functions, I suppose? The regular person would say, well, I just felt like doing it, you know, or this is my decision. Yeah. Of, course, of course, you're not thinking like that. Yeah. Well, the, 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 honest, the most honest answer I can give you, really, is it just happens. Everything just happens. It's just it's just happening, 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 and there's no interest anymore in trying to figure out why it's happening, who it's happening to. I think with with the with the dissolution of self, so much of that goes away. Maybe not all of it, but so much of that goes away. Um, now, I, I I can't discount science. I actually really enjoy science, so I can give you a, a bit of a different sort of answer, and that is what I find is that. I used to believe I had to be consciously aware of processes, decision-making, knowing the whys of things for it to actually occur. Now it's very clear to me that does not have to happen at all. There can be no thoughts at all. And, and this body mind can function perfectly, perfectly fine for long periods of time. It's amazing, actually. Just like what the, yeah, I don't know why it's doing that or how it's doing it, but it's doing it. Um, so what I can say though is Scientifically speaking, um, uh, it's clear that that certain conditions create certain 
experiences or certain possibilities, I should say. For instance, uh, it would be absurd for me to say that, well, I don't have a preference for sushi over dog food or something. Of course, I, I can say that by recalling what I like, what I, what I, what I in the conventional sense, what I seem to, to eat and enjoy eating. Um, so it's very easy to say that and just observe and say, well, yeah, sure, I have a preference of this over that. I'd rather take a bath than step in front of a moving car, right? Of course, right? Um, but, but in the moment, it's completely spontaneous. Those thoughts are, are afterthoughts. They're thinking back and saying something about it. But in the moment, there's just an, I, apparently there's a knowing not to step in front of a car. Um, apparently there's a knowing to just sit in the bathtub when, it, when I wanna sit in the bathtub or cook some food. Um, but I, what I think it is, is that the processing that, um, that makes all these decisions in, in the way you asked the question is really unconscious. It's really subconscious. And then the, con the, the conscious mind, the ego gets a hold of everything and puts its stamp on it and says, oh, I did that, I did that, I did that. This becomes really obvious with the, the shift into non-doership. It, it's just, it, as hard as it is when, when it seems like you're in the world in a timeline making decisions and causing things to happen, as weird as it is from there to see or sense what non-doership could actually be like, that there's no sense of a doer, um, it's even weirder from the sense of non-doership to remember back and be like, how did I feel like I was in control of all these things so much? How could I not see through that illusion that the mind conveniently overlooks when it actually thinks it made a choice and it didn't happen? And it remembers the ones where it thinks it made a choice and caused it to happen. Um, uh, I can give you a, a, an experiment that's really cool that I think illustrates this. Um, and, and, a, and a sort of neurophysiologic uh, like description. So the cerebellum in our brain is the little chunk of our brain in the back and it's not, we're not conscious of its processing. Um, what it does is it uh, teaches us motor skills. So like say we throw a dart at a dartboard and we've never done that before and we throw 10 darts, we're gonna be terrible. It's gonna be all over the place, right? But if we throw a hundred darts, we'll get a little better. If we throw 10,000 darts, we're gonna start getting pretty good at it actually. But the processing that was required for that to happen was completely unconscious. If you think about the complexity of what had to happen on each throw to improve a little bit, it's like your brain's not going, well, I'm gonna make the brachioradialis muscle fire two degrees more to the left and with 1% less uh, strength on this throw, as I bend my arm 97 you know, or 89 degrees and, and release at this time, like that's actually the processing that's happening. It's incredibly exquisitely detailed processing, but it's completely unconscious. I think that the, the overt decision-making of the body moving through the world, doing things, making choices is very similar to that. And then, and on top of that, we have the frontal lobe, which goes, I did that, I did that, I did this, I did that. Um, and I, I can tell from experience that's true because as I said, I can do a lot without thoughts. Like a lot happens now with just no thinking and it's just a spontaneous display. And yet things seem to work fine actually. Um, there are adjustments with certain shifts like non-dual there's adjustments. I mean, you can bump into things and you've got to really learn to focus at certain times and the sense of parallax and depth can go completely away. So, uh, there are adjustments, but overall it's, you, you do, you do totally fine with this. Um, but, uh, the test, I, uh, the experiment I wanted to point out is a really cool one. Have you heard of the Iowa gambling experiment or the Iowa gambling test? This is ingenious. So, um, the gist of it, there's different ways that they've done it, but the gist of it is they take two decks of cards, like a red deck and a blue deck, and they test random people and they sit them in front of these decks and they say, 
you can actually leave with however much money you accumulate by turning over cards. And then say they tell them you can turn over 60 cards and maybe each deck has 60 cards. So they're gonna turn over about half the cards on, on average or total. And then they, they're told you can pick either deck, red or blue, just start turning cards over one at a time. Either deck's fine. Um, and they don't know anything else. They don't know what they're being tested for exactly. They don't really know what's in the decks. But as they turn it over, the red card might show like, you know, $15 or 15 pounds or whatever. Then the, uh, they'll turn another one over and it's like minus five and another one's plus 10. But the deck, like say the red deck is actually stacked so that it, it gives you less money. The blue deck gives you more money overall. And, and it's a little richer deck. So then they test all these subjects and they collate their experience. And they find that say on average, the about 50 cards in, they're consciously aware that, oh, the blue deck is actually richer. And so I'm turning over the blue deck preferentially. They, they consciously know that, right? I'd like 50 cards. But at 35 cards, they're already changing their behavior. They're actually starting to turn over the blue cards much earlier than they're consciously aware that they're doing it. Does that make sense? So the body is actually already adjusting before they're consciously aware of the, the benefit of that adjustment. But what's really cool is like 15 to 20 cards in, their body, they're, they're already having a physiologic response to the red deck. They're getting like their heart rate changes. They're getting galvanic skin resistance changes. So their body physiologically actually knows that's the wrong deck way before their adjust, the, the adjustment of behavior, which if you think about the brain is probably even a more evolved part of our brain that can, that can adjust complex behavior and decision-making. And then the most recently evolved part of our brain, the frontal cortex goes, and I did that. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I think it's fascinating. And they have, there's these really elegant functional MRI studies now showing that choices are made before you're consciously aware they're made um, and, and that sort of thing. So all of that jives with my experience that really things do just play out. They just happen. Um, yeah, you, you can scientifically look into things and empirically test and find out what caused what and look into causality and all that. That's great. But the, the conscious part of us that thinks it's the one doing that causality, to me, clearly is not. It's, it's not actually, the decisions are made before we even consciously know we're making those decisions. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that is fascinating, remarkable. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about, a little bit more about conditioning, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm also aware of the time. So what's your hard stop? Should we make this the last sort of uh, last thing? Um, I'm, I'm totally thrilled and uh, required no rest it, uh, with what you're saying whatsoever, but you know, what's your hard stop? You can keep going. Okay, great. I don't have I don't have a limit. We can just go as long as you want. Okay, well, I'll bring it to an end out of mercy for the viewers eventually, but um, for now, yeah, we'll keep going. That's great. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's very amazing. Okay, so you talked about um, facing one's conditioning, and that one of the experiences you had, and something you've observed in many of the people that you've seen in this waking up process is that they face they're going to face their conditioning and that can be pretty uh difficult it seems mm. or pretty intense we're also talking a little bit about conditioning as presumably something of the architecture of what animates behavior mm. there's some learning that feeds into which is a sort of conditioning which feeds into you know your ability to communicate in english language and so on so maybe there's a continuum of con a continuum of conditioning and um so I guess what I'm I'm saying is, do you experience any guardrails 
on your impulses um, behaviorally. What can you talk a bit more about what you meant by having to face the conditioning? I know also you've talked about and you've written about shadow work, having to do shadow work, this idea of, of looking at the kind of one's uh, blind spots, essentially, uh, of one's personality and and um, and, and uh, psychology and so on, which, which can sometimes drive behavior in an interesting way. So that's a bit of a continuum, really. Um, do you experience any guardrails? What about all this conditioning that you're referring to comes up and one has to work through it, you've said. But also, have you experienced uh, or witnessed anyone with personality disorders, uh, such as the cluster B personality disorders, uh, psychopathy, sociopath, uh, borderline, narcissism, etc., like that? Have you have you witnessed them going through any of those sorts of people going through an awakening experience? And if so, how does their that awakening experience interact with the personality disorder? Okay, that was a lot of stuff. Okay, let me back up. What was the first question? Okay, I could do them one, two, three. One, two, three. Guard guardrails today. Yep. Okay. Number two, conditioning post awakening and yep. differentiating between the conditioning that you must work through and the conditioning that presumably remains to be even able to speak to me right now. Okay. And then number three, uh, personality disorders. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Guardrails. That's a good question. I think what <laughs> I I I commonly see people who go through that initial shift, the initial awakening let's call it Kensho or um, waking up from the, the dream that um, I'm some discreet seeking, endlessly seeking person chasing the, you know, my own carrot on the stick. You can almost say that the awakening is you think there's a carrot out there you're chasing, but when you wake up, you like look at it from the side and you realize you're holding the stick and the carrot. <laughs> but anyway, that first shift, that first awakening, it can sort of take the guardrails off. That makes sense. Like you, you, there were layers of identity that were there to, that you sort of constructed to make yourself fit into the social matrix in an acceptable way, but there are un, uh, unaddressed emotional distortions maybe that are underneath those. Um, and that's maybe why you built that in the first place is just self-protection and protection of those around you. But when that, that identity layer goes away, all of a sudden the next layers can come to the surface or come into consciousness. And that's the, the part of you that's maybe a little more selfish than, than you let on or a lot more selfish than you let on for lack of a better way of saying it. And now you're like, oh my gosh. But the, the nice thing that's built into awakening about this is like, as I said before, it's like, you see that it comes into consciousness. You, you can feel at, at multiple levels that it's distorted and there's, there's delusion around it. And yet you also see yourself sometimes acting on it. You know, um, not in extreme ways, not in violent ways that I've really seen, but um, but the, the repressed stuff comes to the surface and sometimes you will, you know, see yourself reacting to someone in a strong way that in the past you had prided yourself on never having a temper or something, for instance. That's not an uncommon one, actually. Um, anger falls into this nicely because anger is a boundary emotion. Anger in and of itself is a, is a um, completely adaptive emotion, right? You, you, it's fight or flight. If somebody physically threatens you, um, it, it gives you the energy and the focus and the uh, um, access to whatever parts of your brain are necessary in that moment to fight or run away, et cetera. Um, but when we say we learn dysfunctional patterns of anger and, and passive aggression and all these sorts of things, and then we bury those under this like false sense of I'm a nice person or I'm a nice guy or whatever. And then that part goes away. All of a sudden these weird 
competing agendas and some anger stuff that might still be there underneath and it starts coming out. And then we have to sort out, okay, what's a real boundary? What's an actual boundary? And what are boundaries that are imagined, right? Are you acting angry because you expect that person to do something and that's based on your conditioning? Or are you actually getting angry because they actually are doing something? They are pushing your boundaries, for instance. And you have to learn to sort that stuff out. It's very important um, because you're now also in contact with emotion more than you ever had been before. And it's like, okay, when is the emotion appropriate? And when is it actually based on my own conditioning, beliefs, preconceptions about the situation or the person? And that's the conditioning. The conditioning is a huge, huge set of precon preconceived ideas, notions about uh, what I should do, who I am, how I respond to things, what people actually mean when they talk to me, contextual, situational um, belief systems. And all of that actually will just completely deconstruct itself over time. It, the, the belief stuff, the, um, I mean, you, you can literally live with no beliefs. And, and as I said before, it's just everything is just arising here. It's just fine. But the road to that can be awkward. Um, uh, it, it, I think it's, it's really important to have a modicum of um, humility, to have a teacher of some sort someone who can put you in check or point things out to you that you respect enough to actually hear and not get defensive when they say, Hey, you're being a jerk, you know, or whatever that was unkind, what you did, or you're not handling this well in your relationship, maybe whatever it is. So I think it's, it's very helpful to have one or more people that you actually respect that aren't, haven't been dead for 2000 years. Like someone who's alive, who can actually give you feedback, even if it's just a trusted friend who you just find to be a compassionate, honest person, it doesn't have to be a spiritual advisor. So I think that's really helpful in this in this stage. Um, emotion work therapy, if you need it. Trauma therapy, if you need it. Um, just a lot of introspection, a lot of inquiry about what am I? What do I believe about this moment? What do I believe about this situation? What am I not wanting? This is going into shadow work. What do? What am I not wanting to see right now? What do I not want to admit about myself? right? Where's the last place I want to look right now in this situation when I feel triggered? What is the truth of it? Where am I the one that's, I, I want to point my finger at that person so bad, and I'm so sure that they are wrong, and they did this mean thing to me, or whatever it is, and maybe they did, but the fact that it's triggering for you is always pointing something back here. There's something to find if, if you really look. What is it about that person that reminds me of me that I don't want to see? Those kind of questions are really powerful for shadow work. Um, just coming into a deep authenticity, a sincerity about what's real for you, um, what's what's honest for you, um, and being honest about how you treat people. A lot of this is about people because we learn our deepest conditioning from people, and they, they tend, it tends to come out around people and in inter, you know, uh, human uh, situations and, and conditions. Um, a lot of stuff around relationship comes up, um, looking into what do I really expect from my partner? What, is, what, do I, what do I want them to do for me, if I'm, if I'm honest? Am I, am I expecting them to make me happy, really? I mean, what, what pressure am I putting on them? Do I see people for who they actually are? Or do I see them for what I want them to be? I mean, there are a million questions I can come up with around this stuff, but it's, you know, join a circling group, a good circling group, you know, one that you really feel is authentic and that people have uh, really reasonably evolved and vulnerable personas, um, things like that, you know what I mean? Um, not persona so much, but expression, I should say. Um, yeah, so, so that kind of thing. Really don't become the, someone emailed me the other day, a Zen dick. Don't become a Zen dick. Don't become, don't watch for the Zen stink because it will come to some degree always. It just does. 
the specialness. I'm special. I woke up, right? whatever it is. And you, you know not to think that or not to say it, but you still can kind of act like that. So um, look into those things. What, what is it? What, why do I want to be special? Why do I want to feel special? Do I, in which ways in my life am I looking for validation or expecting validation or manipulating people for validation? Any of that. When am I manipulative? You know, um, am I manipulating people by uh, uh, being a people pleaser? Yeah, that's a pretty inauthentic thing to do. And a lot of us do it. A lot of us sensitive people at some point go through a phase of people pleasing. And you have to realize like, that's also manipulative, you know? What's inauthentic about that? People pleasing? Oh, um, from the view of awakening, I mean. The, the, from the view of awakening, it's it's simple. It's it's you're you're actually completely sacrificing your own truth in that moment. You're pretending you are someone who you're not. You're pretending you believe something you don't believe. You're being agreeable when you when you're actually not agreeable. So it's it's inauthentic. So you're kind of lying to someone about who you are just so they'll be nice to you. That's a that's a pretty gross way of putting it, but it's kind of like that in a sense. That sounds like it's 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 inauthentic um, from a certain point of view, but it's authentic. One is authentically pretending or authentically self-sacrificing from the position of from the view of awakening. I guess from your from your view, what? Yeah, it seems that seems quite an authentic expression in a sense. Oh yeah. Um, how to differentiate? That's a great question. I guess I would say it this way: the best thing I can give somebody um, is is uh, is authenticity, true authenticity, who I really am. Um, Can you be an authentic people pleaser? That sure. might be authentic about you. What's wrong <laughs> no, with that? Being kind is not inauthentic. Being kind is not inauthentic. Um, people pleasing as a um, as a manipulative strategy is one of I, I I've seen I can tell you I mean I did I used to do it and I have worked with people who've worked through it and seen it themselves. Um, I think sometimes, not always, sometimes it develops if you grow up in an environment where um, the common one is abusive environments. If you grow up in an abusive environment, you learn to be hyper vigilant to how the parent or the abuser or whoever that can't regulate their own nervous system and very intense and so forth, you become hyper vigilant to how they're feeling and you try to soothe them. You try to soothe them all the time. And that's, the, that's the, what you do. That's how you learn to survive in a sense. Um, and then because we're humans and we have consciousness and we can reflect things into adulthood, we still do it in adulthood. And there, in, in a sense, it's, it, it can kind of work. It can kind of have an effect on people that calms them down or makes them like you. But I just, I, I don't know how to say it exactly. It's just, there's just a layer of it that can be inauthentic and it can be tricky to tease that out um, because you don't, I, I'm not suggesting you do the opposite of just being a jerk either. Um, some people fixate the other way. They're, 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 rebellious and will almost overtly get an argument, you know, just, just to do it um, as, uh, and that's the way they've learned to, to interact with people around them. Um, but 
yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can say a lot more about it. That's uh, it's just something I've noticed. On the sort of continuum from impulsiveness, mm -hmm. um, merely saying whatever comes into your mind, which I think can be an interesting training exercise to contact what's inside, which a lot of people, of course, uh, are not able to contact. And perhaps on the one hand, that would be one side of the continuum. The other side would be perhaps maximum repression of some sort, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it's so repressed one can't even feel what's inside. And presumably in the process of socialization, one learns to navigate that continuum as sometimes repressing one's uh, emotional uprisings or thoughts or expression other times uh, being honest and taking more of a risk in that sense. It seems like the process of socialization um, requires a certain flexibility there. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the question of authenticity or the use of that word authenticity to suggest that the impulse, the impulsive, and let's face it, quite changeable uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, side of the spectrum is somehow truer because it's more immediate than the, if you want, uh, superego uh, sort of uh, socialized balance of a person's mm -hmm. expression um, seems, uh, seems, I think, characteristic of a certain sort of, um, I guess, you know, I mean, we were talking about, you know, West Coast, Colorado, sort of, um, I suppose, somewhat psychotherapy, somewhat self-help. Um, that I think, uh, it's, that sort of, I think is a characteristic of that. Um, you mentioned circling. I think that that also can be characterized by that, um, you know, sort of impulsiveness, impulsivity bias and, mm. and the sort of psychological payoffs of, of, of doing that sort of thing in a group. Socialization seems to include a, a broader spectrum of the, of the continuum. And over time, one manages relationships over time what one feels to say now may not be representative of, of what, how one really wants to be in a relationship, say over a period of time. You know, sometimes you've got to bite your tongue. It's not necessarily inauthentic. Yeah. Um, it's, it could be an authentic uh, socialization. Uh, uh, it could even be man, uh, kind, you know, and something mm -hmm. like that. It may be, uh, so I think it's, um, it's a sort of a puzzling thing. It's interesting to me that the when you talk about conditioning, you're in a certain sense, it seems that awakening has allowed you to engage in a kind of therapy, uh, therapeutic self-help kind of um, process that's characteristic of your cultural context. Um, I wonder how universally you see that to be. I wonder if someone 2000 years ago or 2000 years ahead of now will necessarily encounter the same things? Or do you see a differentiation between your therapeutic journey that's been uh, helped precipitated by your awakening experience? Or do you do you see this as a necessary and intrinsic and natural part of uh, the awakening process or a consequence of the awakening process, regardless of one's cultural context? So if someone wakes up in Thailand or someone wakes up in Sub-Saharan Africa, they're going to be doing shadow work. They're going to be going through that process, even if they call it something slightly different. Yeah, that's like, I mean, I think uh, to get the gist of your question, I think that's a good, that's a good question. Is it, is it like sort of cultural based on someone's personal experience, where they grew up, what culture they grew up, maybe what religion they grew up in? Um, I mean, my, in my experience working with people going through this, it's, it's universal, meaning everyone's going to, everyone's going to, when you release that top layer of identity 
I mean, the stuff is there. You just can't deny it. And I've met people with very like uh, light conditioning, I would say, but I've also met people with very, very, very heavy, deeply rooted conditioning, but everybody has some and, and it's almost universally somewhat painful to go through this. This is another thing that I think many teachers don't talk about at all. And then some, I think, almost overemphasize it, how, how painful it is to go through the, the post-awakening process. But it's in my experience and the people I know, and I know people, I know many people who've gone through deep realization, no self-realization. Uh, it's pretty much universal that they have a significant amount of conditioning, repression, pain to work through. It's nothing personal is the thing. There's nothing personal about this. We inherit it. Um, I really like the way Eckhart Tolle describes it as, as pain body. Um, it's, it's a life force. It, you know, I, sometimes what I tell people who have gone through deep realization, even no self-realization, I say, if I have one last piece of advice for you, it's never underestimate the, the power of delusion. It's powerful and it lives in human consciousness and it's transmitted from human to human. And um, its roots are deep. It's older than us. It's, it knows more about the way our minds function than we do. Um, now I'm personifying something in a way to, to, to talk about it, but, but I, I really do see that. I mean, the, the, the delusion and conditioning, um, that, that is deeply embedded in our, in our psyches is, pre, is pretty much pervasive. I do meet an occasional, incredibly compassionate, heart-based, open, honest person who, who really hasn't gone through any sort of realization and there, and there are people out there for sure that are just incredibly kind, authentic, deeply authentic humans. Um, but even they, if they go through the awakening process, they're going to find some conditioning hiding. It's just, it's just in all of us. Um, and uh, how you, how you work through it, how you metabolize it, whether it's, I didn't do therapy. Um, I'm not really much, you mentioned self-help and therapy. I didn't actually do either one of those personally. I'm just giving general guidance I've, I've given people and worked through things with them. Um, there's, there's a lot of approaches to this shadow work stuff, but it's the, the yucky side of awakening. Um, it's just there. It's, I would be destitute in my duties if I didn't inform anyone going through this process that they're going to face it. And in my first chapter of my book, I was very clear on it, that you're going to see things you don't want to see in yourself. You're just going to, you're going to feel things you don't want to feel. Um, you're starting a process that in many ways at some point cannot be reversed. Um, but it turns out okay. It really does turn out okay. It really does. But you're going to have to work through things you don't want to work through. And this goes to one of the fixations around spirituality I see that, that I try to dispel in the book. And that is the idea that spirituality is this magical thing that's going to make me feel good all the time. It's just not like that. Um, it comes to a place of, of true equanimity, of, of intimacy. Um, but it's also radical vulnerability, uh, complete openness. Um, you are 100% at the mercy of conditions. Conditions as they arise is just what's happening. Um, and so the, from point A to that being point B can be a bumpy road. Um, you also mentioned at the beginning of that long question, something that I, I want to touch on, I thought was really nice, as you said, I can't remember the words you used, but it's something like the tendency to just function spontaneously sometimes has a lot of conditioning buried in it. And, and you know, um, trusting that fully can be a challenging process. And I would agree for a time it is that, like I said, when the, the guardrails come up, 
and you're moving through all this conditioning, like you really have to be mindful and careful and practice a lot and, and have good counsel um, that you're not going way off track um, as you work through this. But what you are really doing is learning to live spontaneously, learning to really trust life. But as I said before, conditioning is heavy and it's deeply rooted in human consciousness. And we all inherited it. We're not guilty. We're not guilty parties. It's just there. And, and we, we, we were going to come in contact with it as we move through this process. Um, and so it is about learning to really trust what spontaneity means, um, what natural movement is, what fully and deeply trusting yourself utterly is, trusting your words, trusting the movements of your body, trusting your communications, um, trusting the environment, the world. Uh, it, is, it is does become about that, but the path to that um, has to has to come with a a lot of humility, willingness to look, willingness to see things that you may not want to see, willingness to and willingness to be uncomfortable uh, at times. It's not it's not always like that. There, there's going to be periods of you know deep samadhi and mystical experiences and sacredness, but it's up and down, up and down, bumpy ride. The post awakening through no self realization is quite a bumpy ride, generally speaking. Mm. Yeah. One thing strikes me a little bit odd about about these these last points. Well, uh, it's it sounds it's one of the issues about certainty in terms of which we, we talked about near the beginning of the, our conversation is that if if well we established I think that you're you're making claims about how things are based on how true it feels to you or how it seems to you. And that's not to say that you're wrong, but it's it's to say that, well, it seems to you that everything is Buddha nature. And so therefore it seems to you without question, how could it be any other way that, for example, as we said at the beginning, anyone can wake up, let's say. And and then you also said that anyone who wants to wake up will wake up. You further said now that it'll, it'll, it'll work out fine in the end. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I was curious to qualify that truth claim, and you know, we just was, was for the following reason: those statements, which are, if you want, objective statements based in your subjective experience, and I and I know that's not how you experience it, but if we if we think about in terms of that, how your claim is structured, can leave one vulnerable to mistaking other aspects of one's subjective experience as similarly unassailably correct due to, due to how obvious they are. So it seems odd to me that your um, expression of what one does after awakening matches precisely your cultural context. That seems suspicious, um, suspicious in the sense that it it's presented in the sort of the, with the same sense of obviousness or sense, same sense of certainty that your claims about awakening are made. Which leads me to wonder if there's any differentiation, if you see any differentiation, or if, if the willingness to accept one's own subjective experience is absolutely true, because how, of how true it seems, might leave you vulnerable to accepting other things as absolutely true, because of how true they seem. We previously mentioned, you know, that that puts you sort of in the same camp as an unenlightened person, in in the sense that they also, it seems, you know, they, it seems to be dualistic uh, to them. Uh, what, what person? I'm sorry. What an unenlightened that? person. Person. Yeah, if one's subjective experience and how real it seems is the is the if you want uh, arbiter of of the veracity of the truth claim, then 
it, it can I think it could be a little unhinged there. So I'm I'm just it just seems puzzling to me that you know I, I mentioned therapy and self help, uh, meaning that those are the it seems the cultural context or the perspectives from which you're making these these claims, mm. post awakening claims. You said you haven't done either of them, which is also surprising. I wonder why not, but yet you recommend them to people, which is which is also strange. So I suppose it's odd to me that you're so much of what you're saying maps precisely to your cultural context. It leads me to wonder. So there, I, I'm confused about that cultural context. Is therapy and self-help like a American thing or something? I don't know. I think it would be fair to say that therapy and self-help are not universal concepts. Mm -hmm. they're, I'm not saying that they're limited only to America, but yeah. you know that th we know that therapy has a, a history. The, the fact mm -hmm. that you're, you're asking me now, you know, surely, well, I think this is an example here. No, therapy is not uh, universally held, has not always been held to be the case, is seen differently uh, in different contexts. Gotcha. Um, you know, we know it has a we know it has a history. Many of the, the concepts you're talking about as self-evident have a, an intellectual lineage. We can see when they came into being and that mm -hmm. they weren't there before. Um, yeah. So I think your response there is in a certain sense begs the question uh, that I was asking. It's in a certain sense your response perhaps reveals, um, mm. or does it, I'm asking you, know, I'm, I'm saying this as a thought experiment, uh, a lack of a lack of an appreciation of just how conditioned you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when I said uh, therapy, I, I, I don't know if you remember the list I gave, there's like 15 things. I mean, I was kind of giving you some ideas of the different modalities of, of things people do to work through the, the, do the shadow work, to work through emotional things and so forth. Um, therapy, I don't know, I, I find it interesting that you think that's a cultural American thing or something because we're kind of averse to it in, in this country. Um, I can give you examples of the people I worked with who were waking up who did, who at least culturally had significant value to therapy. I have a friend who's Argentinian and she told me growing up in Argentina, everyone does therapy. It's like, it's very, very common. It's, it's just considered normal. Um, another person who very deeply realized woman. She um, does some great posts online. She's German. She's a German psychologist. Well, let me not force you to argue a point I didn't make. I, I merely said that oh. therapy is relative. I didn't say it's a uniquely American expression yeah. in the sense sure. that your viewpoint is um, uh, re uh, relative into, well, then, then maybe even more specific. It's certainly not, I didn't say it was uniquely American whatsoever. Um, but uh, I did say that what you're describing, I think, is uh, maps precisely to a, a, a cultural context. Mm. It's not to say yeah. that people in Germany don't do therapy or people in Argentina don't do therapy. That's yeah. not, yeah. I think that's not quite right. So the question is a differentiation between, well, as I said, um, the certainty about what is such a relative cultural expression mm. um, next to the certainty of what, of your claims about reality and, uh, and mm. you know, how things are is, uh, is uh, jarring. It's a bit puzzling. And yeah. the, the problem with deriving one's truth claims from one's own experience, even if you're right, even mm -hmm. if you're right in this instance, that method of deriving truth claims and extending meaning uh, out into everything mm. leaves you profoundly vulnerable in, in, in many other ways. You could be very mm. right about awakening, but very wrong about a lot of other things and have mm. arrived at those conclusions and their implications by the same uh, flawed reasoning. Yeah, it feels true. It must be true. Mm. 
Okay, so when I said that, well, I'm just just to go back to what you referred to, the self help um, psychology thing. So I, I literally was just giving you a list of things I've seen people do, recommend that I recommend sometimes. It really varies person to person. Um, the people I've worked with who wake up all over the world, literally Singapore, India. I'm just thinking offhand. Singapore, India, all over Europe, mostly Europe. Um, some in the states, but yeah, I, I, there's no certainty about that. I'm not saying like you have to do this, 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 and this. I'm just giving you a, a huge list of things that people do through this post-awakening process to work through their conditioning. Um, and one thing I say to people is I love working with people who wake up because they always show me how they wake up. I don't prescribe how somebody wakes up. They already know. It's, it's, it's in their intuition. Again, it's their underlying true nature. So they, so I just continuously redirect people back to their own intuition, back to their own intuition. Don't listen to me about how to wake up. Don't listen to anyone about how to wake up. You know how to wake up. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. This I reinforce consistently. So um, yeah, I wouldn't make a, a strong claim at all about this exact list of things. Um, and you focused in on self-help and therapy. But I have definitely met many people who had a lot of trauma in their life and trauma therapy helped them a lot. Um, so again, I was going to mention this person online. Uh, she's great, Christiane Meckelberger. I don't know if you've seen her. Um, and yeah, she still talks. She's definitely realized no self, but she talks about trauma therapy is very valuable. Um, and many people agree with her. So I, I haven't gone through that. I haven't gone through trauma therapy, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't suggest it's a possibility for someone who may need it. Um, if that makes me like a hard line, I believe my truth sort of thing. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's coming across that way. I'm literally just saying, these are things I've seen work. Some of the things that people have to do to work through their conditioning after awakening, um, or that they find helpful, um, or just sit with it. It'll, it'll sort itself out over time, you know? Yeah. You're right that you didn't claim that everyone has to do therapy. Absolutely. You didn't. You did claim that everyone will face their conditioning and must work through it. So you did claim those things. I would and, say it's um, pretty universal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. That's, that's my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And there, you don't see a dividing line in terms of conditioning between say trauma, which is a type of conditioning through to say language, which is another sort of, of conditioning. How um, much conditioning does one need to work through? Uh, where, is there a dividing line between the learned imprints of the body mind, uh, such as trauma, um, for example, which is again, a somewhat relative, cultural uh, conception, but that's not necessarily a problem, but, um, and uh, say something like language, which presumably one doesn't work through the imprints of one's uh, ability to speak a language. Yeah, so I would say that the nice thing about this process is the longer it goes on, the deeper things go, the more you trust your intuition on how much work you need to do, when you need to do it. And most importantly, you don't avoid the work. You don't avoid when something's there, you don't, you don't overlook it. You just know it's, I have to face this. I have to experience it. I have to metabolize it, let it move through. Um, so again, I, I always redirect people to trust their own intuition um, and just really follow it all the way down, all the way through. Um, so, Yeah, amazing. Perhaps, perhaps we could finish talking a little bit about your work as a teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. We've mentioned your book, um, Awake. It's your turn recently published and uh you know and i I've, I've i've read it very thoroughly and it's very interesting indeed and like you said earlier you write it in that very accessible sort of one-on-one -on -one style like it's like having a conversation with you and it's quite a comprehensive book you go through all many of the things we discussed but many more we haven't had a chance to discuss uh 
things things like emotions all these things we've discussed here you know relationships uh the 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 path of awakening objections close pitfalls choosing teachers what to avoid what to look for and so on and so forth a very comprehensive um book written in a very accessible style so maybe we could finish i can ask you a little bit about uh, uh, your teaching work because that book in a certain sense you you say in the book grew from an organic teaching activity that began to happen in conversation some 15 years or so after the initial uh, mm -hmm. Kensha. And you write in the book, several years later, I began to notice that on occasion, whilst in the midst of a casual conversation, the person I was talking to would have a shift in experience. I didn't feel like I was talking about anything special. It actually felt mundane, like talking about the weather or feelings or life. It would only come up with certain people and in mm -hmm. certain situations. With the majority of people I encountered, it didn't come up at all. It seemed to know when to come up. The strange part was that I had no investment in relaying any particular message, yet the conversation would continue in an intuitive way and felt a bit like dancing. People would ask more and more directed questions relating to their own experience. I was genuinely surprised when I would seem to have the answer in the moment. Sometimes I'd wonder, where did that come from? Even as it came out of my mouth, it's still like that, more so maybe. Then people started having awakenings. I can't tell you what it's like, but I will say that the only thing better than waking up yourself is going through awakening all over again alongside another person. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process that sort of seemed to start just happening around you in this spontaneous fashion. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, about, about that process and how that began to unfold? Yeah, it's very strange. It, it's um, even now, like if I'm not talking to you or you know, this is a little different because it doesn't feel like I'm talking about an awakening going through with somebody, but um, but like I've been at retreat for a week and I had a retreat here. Um, and so all week we were kind of engaging that. But if I'm not in that setting, if I'm at work or out you know, shopping or something, it's not in my mind at all. There's nothing. It's just what's happening. It's just this happening, shopping scanning, beeping, locking, you know, um, and so uh, again, it's, it's just all conditions based. Everything just happens how it happens for no apparent reason that I can discern necessarily. Um, but yeah, I would start meeting people. The first time it happened, I think was, it was actually when I was a resident. I was like on a resident service and I was talking with somebody and he was Christian and he started asking me something about Christianity or my belief or something. I can't remember even how the conversation came up. And I just started talking about my experience. I just, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know what I said. And this gal who was standing next to me was like, wow. She's like, that really resonated with something with me. Like, I felt something when you were talking about that. And I was like, I, I really couldn't remember what I said. I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean? What about it was, I didn't know what you, I didn't, I really didn't know what she was talking about. And then a couple of times later, she asked me, she's like, can you talk more about that? Can you tell me more about that? And I literally was like, I don't even know what I'm talking. I don't know what I was talking about. Um, that was the first time I can kind of remember it happening. And then I had a friend who, um, gosh, I can't remember how these conversations start even, but I had a friend who herself was like going through some shifts in life and um, we started talking and I remember her just fixating on what I was saying. And she, she was going, yes, that, that, that's what, that's, that's this, that's this, you know? And um she was the first one I, I very much overtly just said to her, I said, if you keep talking to me, you're going down the rabbit hole. 
like I should really warn you like this this is gonna you're you're gonna you're on a steep path I can tell right now and then I remember thinking like why would I say that how would I even know that mm. but then I can't I can tell I know that I can just see she's just completely opening she's just dissolving she's dissolved her, her ego is dissolving and and she wants to open and um it's happening you know so I was like okay whatever and then she actually started asking me to write to her she said can you write down what you're saying like in a more detail and I, I was like well I don't remember what I was saying exactly but I just wrote this email to her it was kind of long and I said this is kind of how you might approach emotions because she asked me about emotions or something um and then she wrote back and said that was amazing can you write more you know uh, and so I was like sure and so I wrote some other stuff and it kind of started like that and um I kind of worked with her like one-on-one -on -one. um at some point I wrote something, I must've wrote, I wrote something online. I must've wrote something on a group and then a few other people contacted me and um, it just started happening from there. I don't know. I would just meet people at various places uh, and they were in some stage of awakening. Like they were waking up or they, it had already been happening for them or uh, very organically. And that actually was interesting. It really taught me something that changed the way I see at least the process of, of awakening and spirituality. I think maybe because it came from more of a masculine perspective in the past, I really just perceived people who wake up, work really hard at it. They sit, they're part of a sitting group. They're part of a Buddhist group probably. And they work very hard and they, you know, whatever it takes years probably or whatever. And, but this was different. Like the people I was meeting weren't like that. They were extremely in the feminine. They were just waking up, waking up, waking up almost like not trying to. Uh, and it was just happening. And that, I don't know if I just needed to contact that feminine side of awakening somehow, but I noticed like, wow, people really can wake up fast and it's quite amazing. And then I started noticing what it was they were, how they were orienting. Cause I really mean that I say, people show me how they wake up. Everything in that book is from what I learned from people waking up. They just show me, this is how I wake up. And I say, oh, okay, cool. And then maybe someone else will ask a question and I'll say, well, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of learned it from the last person who was waking up or something like that. So it just started to have a, a snowball effect. It was like its own process going. Um, and again, still, it was very staccato. There would be times I wouldn't talk about it. It didn't feel like an, something more or less important than anything else. But I also couldn't deny it was happening. I didn't want to, you know, why would I deny that if somebody's actually curious about it? And I can respond in an honest way. I mean, I'm not going to like not do that. Uh, why wouldn't I share that? But again, it's, it's always a reflection. Um, and this is one of those weird things I say sometimes, but I'll just say it because it's, your question addressed it, is to be honest, like there's no internal world. The, the internal world sense is gone. So the only place I can find anything is that right in front of my face. Like I kind of borrow reality from what I'm experiencing from you. And so when you're going through an awakening, I'm going through an awakening. That's really how it is. And it's always like, I can feel the excitement of it. And the different stages have different feels. That first one is like huge. It's this huge shift in identity. And it's like adventurous, but scary. And, you know, and then later refinements are just much more subtle, but they're also quite profound. And like, oh my God, that's how it is. You know, wow. Um, and I feel that going through these with people um, at all the different stages. It's just, it's just wonderful. Um, but it's also no big deal. It's also not special. Again, it's, it's just not special. It's, it, it's what's right in front of our face all the time. Um, yeah. I don't know if that helped, but yeah. Incredible. Are you able to, 
uh, always or sometimes sense where somebody is in this unfolding you know if you talk to someone for a period of time or you're just around them or they come to your retreat for example um mm -hmm. are you able to get a vibe or a feel you know you're you're a zen master the zen master you had the zen teacher uh you know kind of humorously uh you went through an entire koan and he seemed to seem to miss it but you know that's that's kind of funny but actually it is sometimes said that one can see only as high as one is that that is that is something that's said you know by, by people who report awakening experiences what's your experience of that yeah it's, it's interesting that's a great question it's things are very paradoxical truly and that's why i put that chapter in paradox early in the book because until one is comfortable with paradox this this later world of uh, this later world of realization it can be quite elusive. It's, it's just so slippery and subtle. But um, partially, I want to go back to the answer, the question about certainty that's come up a few times. And sure. you mentioned, I'm making a claim about how reality is, like an objective claim. But that when you were saying that, it did not resonate with me 1% because it's not true. The only claim I can make is that there is no way that things are. And that's the total assault to the mind. But it's, that's, that was the realization. It was very, very clear to me. And it still is. There is no way things are. But paradoxically, there's a total certainty about that. And in that certainty, something can come forth and I trust it. I don't know why. Um, but again, paradox, there's, I definitely don't know anything. I don't know anything about spirituality. I don't know anything about Buddhism. I've read very little doctrine. I've very, very little. I've been told, like, I, I, this is honest truth. Like I've had several people say, you teach Dzogchen. You teach Dzogchen. That's what you teach. And it's hilarious because I literally didn't know what Dzogchen was. I had never seen the word until maybe two or three years ago in a, in a group online. And I thought it was a weird, weird looking word. And I was like, what is that? And I had to look it up, but I've purposely not read any of it um, because I don't want to know about it. And, and I've always felt that way about this. It's, I, I've read a little bit. Um, I've recited the Heart Sutra more times than I can tell you. Some doctrine is very powerful, very good pointing. The Xin Xin Ming, affirming faith in mind, very powerful. Um, but, but I really don't read a lot of doctrine. Um, and that goes back to this immediate truth here that is, there is no objective reality. There is no way that things are. Um, it's, there's no beliefs. I, ha I hold no beliefs in a fundamental way at all. It's complete unknowing. This is complete unknowing. Um, and in that, there's, a, there's a, a deep okayness. And I can't explain why. I can't explain why. It's totally mysterious. But, it's, but I can't deny it either. So, um, so the, the thing I'm going to say next comes out of that, that paradoxical uh, uh, deal. And what was the question? I know, I know it led into this. Hmm. Well, uh, perhaps I'll also say, you, you say you're not making any objective claims, but yeah. I think by definition saying everyone can wake up, everyone who wants to wake up will wake up. And you made several other claims. It will be okay. These are, I think, by definition, objective claims. The subjective version would be, I strongly believe that, or it seems to me that, but you're... Yeah you're willing to extend to make an objective claim and you know one will always go through this these are objective claims so mm -hmm. even the objective claim even the claim that um things are not what did you say things are not nothing is what did things you say? are not any certain way there's no way no, that, that things yeah, are that, that's a, that is an objective there's one thing that's certain it's uncertainty you know um so mm -hmm. i think the, the, to say you're not making any objective claims is a little bit indefensible but my uh, initial question was to do with um, if you can feel or perceive, you know, do you need to have a conversation? Can you see by body language? I'm, and now I'm thinking about things I've heard other places 
not what you said. Yeah. Do you just get a feel or do you have that empathic? Kind oh, of yeah, that's right. Can you track where someone yeah. is in that process? Um, mm -hmm. And how easy is that? And how instant is that? And how accessible is that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So first to answer the thing about indefensible, when you say indefensible, of course, I'm going to answer it. Um, if you believe in objective reality, then there can be objective claims. When it's seen that there is no objective reality, that's just a statement in the moment. It's a statement in the moment. It has a purpose. It has a purpose for the person listening, that there's good news for you. You can wake up. That's where that comes from. So it's absolutely subjective and it's absolutely objective and it's neither one at all. There's no such thing as objectivity from this perspective. So what I will say is the way the mind will put this together, I understand how it looks. The mind will say, no, it's either this or that. It's either objective or it's not objective, but that's not my experience. So the words that come here, I've told people many times, I don't stand by my words. They're just, these are like embers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anyone says. The only thing that matters is your own authenticity. The only thing that matters is your own true experience of what's happening in the moment. Um, the, if, if, if people orient to that, amazing things can happen. Um, terrible that's, things. That's terrible the things point. And terrible things. But terrible that's things the, can happen. Orient to your experience and what feels authentic to you. Wars, genocides, uh, terrible things have happened when people have oriented in that way. Don't you find? To, to, to presence? To what you think orienting to presence causes war? To what feels authentic to them. Hmm. Yeah. And not, and so I would say if you're if you're orienting to something that feels what you think feels authentic and it makes you want to go to war, then you're not actually orienting to your your deeper instinct. You're orienting to a set of beliefs. So that's why it's very important to wake up. Without awakening, um, it's very easy to think you're operating out of your intuition and you're operating out of your mind. Who are you to tell a person that what is their authentic truth? Uh, what is their? I'm, I, can't. I, I, I think the premise. Can. I think the premise of authenticity in this in this sense doesn't work, but you know, authenticity works if it's the authenticity that you agree with. If someone mm -hmm. authentically in that moment wants to go to war, that's not authentic. Uh, they're actually rooted in beliefs. But the authenticity that you're connected to is somehow not rooted to beliefs. What if your authenticity, your sense of authenticity, is similarly, uh, perhaps delusionally? also rooted in your own beliefs and conditioning. Yeah, it's not about belief. That's that's the point. And you said, how, who am I to tell it was someone what their beliefs. intuition is? Who am I to tell someone what their intuition is? I'm not, and neither are you. You just did. You but just the, did. Person, the person can trust their intuition. That's all I'm saying. Angelo, you just told me that mm -hmm. um, it is about beliefs. You just, you, just, you just told a person, a hypothetical person who, you know, presumably authentically wants to go to war, mm -hmm. it's about beliefs. No, intuition isn't about beliefs. Not the way I'm speaking of it. The, the way I'm, I'm talking about it, intuition, it's not about belief. It's beyond belief. It goes beyond belief. It goes beyond the cognitive mind. I can see that you believe that, but by your own argument, you're no mm -hmm. different from the person who wants to go to war in that sense. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're just unwilling to acknowledge, perhaps, um, by your own, uh, you know, if, if we take the frame that you set up, mm -hmm. that you're sense of authenticity is just as conditioned as the person whose authenticity leads them to say go to war you would mm -hmm. say to them no, no no that's not real authenticity that's your beliefs uh, but somehow your authenticity is not conditioned by beliefs there's no way to differentiate that except, so except the, what the, feels it's really important it's really important to explain though the first move the first important shift in realization is to move beyond concept 
you're talking completely in concept right now. You're just talking in concept. You're talking argument argumentatively, conceptually, logically. What I say when I tell people orient your intuition is to orient down through your conceptual self. All those doubts, all those arguments in the mind, you have to go beyond that. Until you go beyond that, you will be subject, subject to conditioning. That's what I mean by it. Now, if somebody hears that message, and many people do hear that message and really get it, and I've had many people tell me after a lot of shift, a lot of movement, a lot of realization, they've literally said to me, thank you for telling me to trust my own intuition because I never trusted it. I never trusted it. And people told me not to, spiritual teachers told me not to trust it. I've heard this more times than I can tell you. And they said, thank you for telling me. And I think it's crazy that, that no one has told them they can do that. But I'm just saying, why can't you trust your own intuition? Trust it. Just trust it. It's fine. It's totally fine. Unless it says go to war. In which case, that's your beliefs. Well, you have to recognize that your intuition is not a thought. That's the first move. Without that first movement of realization, you'll get in your mind every time. Intuition goes far beyond the conceptual mind. Thoughts, argumentation, examples, things that aren't happening right now, like wars. It's right now. It has to be here, and it has to be beyond the conceptual self, the conceptual mind. That's the first movement. And then it, it goes deeper, actually. So that's what I mean by intuition. I mean, I do explain what I mean by it, but I don't mean a thought. I don't mean an example, a conceptual, uh, an ideology, uh, things like that. I don't, I don't mean an activity. It's not an action. It's what's right here. So I don't know if that's helpful. Yes, it is. I very much appreciate you uh, being willing to engage in this sort of discussion. I think it's great. And I think it's marvelous that, you're, that we're having this sort of a conversation. You're willing to engage in it with such vigor and unflinchingly. Um, my hat's off to you for, for doing that, really. It's excellent. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's, it's tremendous. Um, so, I mean, do, do we want to finish this question about you, the way you can detect or, or well, I asked oh, you, can okay. you detect where someone's at? And then I think then perhaps we'll, we'll finish. But, you know, yeah. but before you go into that, I, I do want to reiterate, it, it, excellent that you're willing to engage in this, in this kind of uh, vigorous discussion. And I, I certainly appreciate it a great deal. Yeah, no, I don't mind. I, I like challenges. I mean, I like people who challenge and that when I feel how much vigor you have for wanting to challenge me in a certain way or challenge what I'm saying, um, that feels like authenticity. You're being honest. It's, a, it's a, something you really are trying to get me to, to point to or say or something. And I, I'm doing my best, but you know, it's not always perfect. doesn't always come across perfect, but, uh, but I think we, got, we got to some sort of, at least I, I think it's hopefully clear to the viewers what I'm saying and it's clear to the viewers what you're saying. That's what matters probably. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, as far as where people are, it's very interesting. You read my book and it's like awakening. It's a thing. There's stages to it. It progresses, right? And then if you read my paradox chapter, I say, and also it's not, and there are no stages and it's right here. And it's the presence is always just this, of course. Um, so, so it's paradoxical. But one thing that I, I do individually when I work with somebody is pretty soon after I'll, they'll contact me and say, hey, do you work one-on-one? -on -one? If I'm not busy or I don't have too many people I'm working with at that moment, I'll do it. And I usually say something close to the beginning like this. Um, I'm not going to add, I can't add anything to what you are. I don't need to subtract anything from what you are. And I say this very, and I say this is very important. I don't see you as unenlightened because I really don't. I don't see you as unenlightened. I don't look at you and see an unenlightened person. I don't always say the parts like I don't see a person, but I, I don't see you as an unenlightened person. I can't see that. So what stage you're at, et cetera, I really don't care. I don't think about it. I really don't. It might come up sometimes if somebody's coming up to the, the next, you know, they're, they're like, this has happened and this has happened and the no self is pretty clear, but 
there's still some stuff floating around. I feel like there's something I'm not seeing. I might point them towards the non-dual and there's some um, very good inquiries you can work with for the non-dual realization shift. Um, so I might do it in that way. But I, I tell people often more than once, I say, listen, in this moment we're talking, I don't care if you had an awakening, never had an awakening, you've realized no self, I don't, it doesn't matter because I don't think of any of that. That's all, even that is conceptual to me right now. There's only this, there's only what's happening now. There's no past, there's no future. There's just the flow of this conversation. There's not a teacher and a student. There's not a goal. There's not a, and I mean this, this is my own truth. Like there, there's none of that's here for me. And so I'm gonna to respond to you completely spontaneously the best I can, I, I suppose. And out of that, something may happen, something may come. And that's great if it does, uh, but it's fine. I trust life, life will do what it needs to do. But yeah, I don't, I can't see you as unenlightened. <clears throat> and sometimes I'll have people even say multiple times, well, I've never had an awakening or anything, but, and they'll tell me about an experience. And once they've said that like three or four times, I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what are you even referencing for that? How do you know whether you've had one or not? How do you know whether you're awake or not? How can you really know that? What are you referencing? I'm not telling them they are awake or not awake. I'm saying, look at what your reference pattern is in the mind or what, what is it that's making you perceive things that way. And, and sometimes that just stops them in their tracks. And they're like, well, I hadn't thought of that, you know, because I can't see you that way. So how can you see yourself that way sort of deal? So um, it's that paradoxical place between, sure, there is a, a progression in the relative. And yet that progression is seemingly made out of that seeming progression, I should say, is made out of points in time that are extremely just deep and profound and present and exchanges can happen or not. Um, but I, I really try to always start with where they are. I don't invalidate it. If they're having an experience, I don't go, oh, that's the wrong experience. Let's turn it into this one. I just say, oh, great. Let's investigate it. Or, or I might say, do you have an inclination of, that it's uncomfortable or something? Because sometimes people will say something and I don't even know why they told me. So I'll say, is there a question about it or is it uncomfortable? And sometimes I'll say, yeah, I feel something feels like I'm not seeing it clearly. And I'll say, okay, well, let's look. So I really do sort of let them lead the way. Um, and I'm not leading them to a next stage. However, I can step back and look at the whole process and go, it tends to kind of go in certain stages, generally speaking. Um, but even that, it's not always in the same order. And um, people really do wake up. Everyone wakes up a little differently. In, in, in their own personal narrative, in the events of their lives, whether or not they need therapy, whether or not they, how much heavy shadow work stuff goes on. Um, it, it's just so different for everyone, of course, there's an individuality to it. So again, a paradox, uh, a wonderful paradox, but a paradox. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's been a, such a fascinating conversation. Uh, Angelo, thank you very much for uh, coming and being willing to discuss th things with such, with such vigor and uh, energy as we've done. And uh, your book, Awake, It's Your Turn, recently published and available uh, all places where good books are sold. I've uh, got a copy myself. And your, your website, simplyalwaysawake.com. The place where people can find out more about your, your work. And there's lots of videos there, all kind of good resources there, as well as the means to contact you. And all of that information will be in the show notes. Dr. Angelo DeLulo, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.